Welcome to The Brew, a podcast series which deep dives into trending topics about business and culture. Now sit back and join in on the conversation over a cup of freshly brewed coffee. Welcome to The Brew. I'm your host, Valtteri Salamaki. How are you doing? It is right there. Cool. Awesome. Uh, I'm also joined by the co-host, uh, Nick Hill and Luis. And today's guest is actually our professor from yeah. UC Riverside. We have Professor Jonathan Lim. And we're going to talk a lot about marketing, consumer behavior, as well as the future of education. But before we get started, it would be great if you gave a nice little introduction uh, about yourself, Professor Jonathan. All right. Which way should I look? Should I look this way or this? Oh, we got one camera right on you right over there. Oh, camera or- one. Camera two. Camera, camera three. three. Ah, <laughs> all right, all right. Camera four, oh right goodness, here. I'm seeing myself in the in the screen right here. Oh my goodness. And then look at these peepers right here. Wow. This okay, five, I'm not six. used to this level of attention. Um. Anyway, so um. Okay, so, uh, my name is Jonathan Lim. Uh, I'm a professor in marketing at UC Riverside, uh, as as was as was mentioned. And so I teach classes in advertising, consumer behavior, uh, marketing research, kind of the whole gamut. And so that's kind of where my focus is. I also do a lot of work with the undergraduate population at UC Riverside. I'm the faculty director for uh, undergraduate engagement. And so I've done a lot of work with just different organizations on campus and just finding ways to uh, get undergraduates involved. And so uh, it's been a pleasure just to work at UC Riverside, to work with great students such as uh, such as, uh, as, as we have here. And yeah, just a great time. And so for all my students who are watching this right now, who may be watching this, shouts out to you all. Thank you for, uh, for, for helping me to get to where I'm at today. So I appreciate it. So. Awesome. And uh, I kind of, I guess, a, l- a little bit about your background. So you uh, you did your uh, undergraduate studies. Where did you do your undergrad and where did you do your uh, PhD? Sure. So I, I did my undergraduate studies at UC Irvine. Okay. Uh, and so I, I double majored in psychology and also business administration. Uh, an interesting fact, I was actually in accounting uh, concentration. <laughs> so, uh, so kind of the long story of how I got here, we can always talk about that another time. But I was in accounting concentration, thought I was going to go down that track. And then uh, kind of life took me in a different direction. And for graduate school, I actually went to UCLA, another UC, um, and I studied, uh, did a PhD in marketing, uh, took about five years. And so, and then after that, uh, after I graduated, got a job at UC Riverside. So I'm basically a UC lifer. That's why I tell myself I'm going to live and die at a UC for, for the rest of my career. So, uh, and I'm at UC Riverside now, basically. Awesome. That's, that's, a, that's a great little introduction to your background. And uh, I mean... We have a lot to talk about today, sure. and, and uh, we we're kind of we wanted to bucket into three major conversations. But um, the main one we want to start with is um, going straight into kind of consumer behavior and why you wanted to research that. Like, what really gravitated you towards consumer behavior, and what is it? Sure, sure. So uh, I think when so okay, so when I was in uh, college and I was thinking about kind of what I wanted to study, what I was interested in. Uh, so I actually, interestingly enough, I actually started out in engineering. That was actually my first major. So yeah, so wow. my life story has taken many turns, as you, as you can see, right? So I started out as an engineer. I thought, you know, I'm going to become a doctor. I'm going to go down that path. I was a biomedical engineer, so I was a very ambitious person uh, back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. So I was a biomedical engineer, and so I thought I was going to go down that path. But I remember taking my first class uh, in biomedical engineering, and I remember uh, just all my fellow classmates, like, they were so intently interested in this class. Like, they were just, like, really engaged. They really enjoyed it. And I remember just falling asleep in class. And I was like, I know at that point I knew this is not for me. Like I understood, like <laughs> I cannot do this, right? If I'm falling asleep in literally the first week of class of like my first week of college, mm-hmm. this is not for me. And so, and so I thought to myself, like, what do I really want to do? Like, what am I really curious about? And I think going off on the idea of consumer behavior, I thought I really am interested in studying people, right? And thinking mm-hmm. about how they think, how they act, why they do what they do. And because 
as complex as technology is right now, like our machines and our and our and, and kind of the things that we have, right, and our, our phones and our iPads and all those kinds of things, the most complex machine is actually our minds, right? Our, mm-hmm. our, it's, it's in here. And scientists, even for all our learning, for all the things that we know, we still barely understand what's in here. We still barely understand what's in our in, in, in our minds, right? And so that piece of machinery, that black box, as researchers like to call it, is still very much unknown, even all these years later, all this studying later, we're still, try, still trying to figure it out. But by figuring it out, there's a lot of implications, right? When you think about why did I go to Target today as opposed to Walmart? Why did I go to Best Buy and not and not you know another electronic store? Why did I shop on Amazon, right? Why did I go to this restaurant? Why did I buy this, right? These are things that we do on a daily basis. We spend money, we spend our time, we spend our energy doing these things, but we barely understand why we do these things. And that's the crazy part, right? We're spending thousands of dollars, hundreds of hours of, of our time every week, every year, you know, all, uh, et cetera, making these big life decisions. Who, who do I marry? What car do I buy, right? Where do I go for school? Some of these really big life choices without fully understanding why we're doing what we're doing. And so be, to be able to understand that, to be able to really think about that and to really process that and to have a better grasp of that, it's really important. And so when you think about consumer behavior and what we study, it's really basically like what it sounds like. It's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. It's the study of consumers and how they behave, right? How they make decisions, why they do what they do, uh, what's kind of the underlying motivations and just uh, thought processes that they go through, right? Those are the kinds of things that we look at and that we study is really just kind of who are consumers, what characterizes them, how can we categorize them, and how can we better understand them? It's a lot. It's a lot, lot, <laughs> lot of stuff out there. But. Yeah, it is, yes. <laughs> And as you stated, like consumer behavior, it's it's very straightforward, but there's a lot to it. Sure. So there's there's a lot of underlying um, concepts to it, and that's what we're gonna really dive into today because I know Nikhil has some questions tied into design and stuff that that he does. Uh, Me and Luis have some questions, obviously tied into advertisement. Sure. Yeah. Um, But um, do you guys have any questions you guys want to start with before I I would go into future of education? But it's more. I mean, I'm I'm cool with that. I'm cool with just kind of going in with uh, with future of education, then just kind of feeding into other stuff, but. I, I think it's interesting. I think the consumer behavior as a whole, I mean, it's something that has interested me since forever. And I think it's that that notion that you brought up that like thinking about like w- how that black box works, you know, mm-hmm. and why people do what they do. I mean, it's when I was at UCR and I was doing research, it, my whole thing was on like consumer persuasion, like how mm-hmm. a brand can persuade a, a customer to kind of follow in line. Mm. Um, and it's it's the most interesting thing in the world. And mm. I think it cuts so deep into psychology and and just honestly habit forming. Sure. That it's, it, yeah, very, very interesting. It's, I, I'm excited for this conversation for sure. Sure. Yeah, and in addition to that, like because of COVID and everything, like consumer behavior, like the shift in that has changed so much, right? Yeah. Um, like we're seeing like these major stores doing super well, but these other stores not doing super well, whereas like it may have been more balanced out before. So I, I think this will be such a relevant conversation. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of people watching today too. So for everyone watching, feel free to ask your questions. We'll be- Yeah, please. Yeah, we'll definitely interact sure. with you guys, yeah. talk to you guys, answer your questions. And so yeah, this should be great. I know that you, Nikhil, just to kind of touch on, on this live aspect of it, I know that you're focusing on LinkedIn. So you're going to be kind of the, the LinkedIn liaison, if you will. <laughs> um, so any questions that you have on LinkedIn, um, Nikhil's going to kind of bring those up. Yep. Whereas if you're on Twitch, um, I'll bring them up. So uh, myself and Val, I believe, I believe he's also on the Twitch chat. So I'm going between both. Just, you know. Yeah, I, I am strictly Twitch. Um, so yeah, any questions you have, um, we can answer them real time. So as long as um, we're in between questions or in between talking points. Um, so yeah, we, we can get some Spitfire stuff going as well. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, getting straight into it, I mean, 
<laughs> education's changed quite a bit. As, as sure. we were talking a little bit before before we started this, um, COVID not only impact is it impacting education now, but it will impact in the long term. Sure. There, there's there's no kind of you can't deny that because the way that now students are behaving when it comes to school has also mm. changed. So. I guess the the first thing, first question I have for you is, where do you think education is going to go now because of COVID? Because prior to COVID, there was a lot of conversations that the future of education is online. But I think COVID mm-hmm. actually showed us that it really 100% isn't. Mm-hmm. We aren't completely ready for all online classes. There's mm-hmm. a certain aspect that it should still be in person. But what do you think the future of education is really going to look like? Oh, that's... That's a really good question. And if I had a perfect answer to this, I would not be a professor still probably, right? Um, So um, that's a good question. Um, And and I would say from my perspective, I think think you're right. I think so there's been a push over the past 10 years to to get more things online, more classes, more, uh, you know, just teaching time online, right? Because it's just easier for students to access. There's more opportunities, all these kinds of things. And so it was nice at first, right? When you took maybe one or two classes online and you and you had kind of that being part of your schedule, right? But now COVID kind of has like doused everyone into this online environment, right? You're kind of like jumping into the deep end, so to speak, right? Where all your classes are online. And I think that uh, as a faculty member, we're kind of seeing some of the draw, the positives and the negatives of that, right? We're seeing some of the pros and cons. And for, like you mentioned, for a lot of students, it's hard. It's hard to have all your classes online because we're not really geared towards that, at least as in terms of uh, kind of where we are in, in, in our learning kind of uh, environment yet. Yeah, we're not really geared towards having everything online. It's hard for students to do that. And so where I think the future of, of education is heading, I think that I think. OK, so I think that this push towards online. So I think part of the reason why we've there, we haven't had a stronger push online before COVID is just because there's a lot of fear from professors. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fear. Right. How do I put my materials online? How do I put this science class online? How do I put, you know, this lab online? Right. So there's a lot of fear, a lot of under. And then on the student side, there's fear as well, too. Right. How am I going to be able to, to talk to my professor if I can't see him face to face? Right. Mm-hmm. How am I going to be able to ask questions, get help, et cetera. Right. So. There, even though the technology is there for us to, to push things online, a lot of what has kept us back is just fear from faculty, from students, from both perspectives, that lack of motivation to say uh, we want to push things online. And so I think COVID has shown us that we can do it and has shown faculty such as myself that, hey, you can do this. It's not as hard as you think it is, right? You can you can find ways to provide a good product, so to speak, in an online environment, right? There are definitely ways to do that. So I think this will give a lot of faculty encouragement that, hey, maybe having a class or two online, uh, you know, it, during my during the year in my, as part of my course load, that's actually feasible. It's actually something that's mm-hmm. very doable, right? And, I, and maybe even more and more as time goes on. And there's a lot of convenience to it. You, could, you get to teach from the comforts of your own home, right? You get to teach kind of in your own setting you don't have to be in front of 80 people at a time 100 people or whatever so there's there's actually a lot of pros to it but what i will say is that from talking to a lot of students and from kind of seeing uh, you know just other perspectives as well too students will say you know the learning just doesn't feel the same right yeah. it doesn't feel like i'm getting as much as i as i'm paying for as if i were in a classroom even though surprisingly 80% of the things that I would say in, an, in in a classroom, I would actually say in an online environment. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same. Like the experience that you're getting, the material you're getting, the, 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 the information you're getting is exactly the same. When I teach advertising online versus in person, exactly the same material. It's not like I'm shortchanging my students by teaching them less or holding back the topics or whatever. It's exactly the same. But it's the perception that I don't feel that relationship with my professor. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. feel that warmth. I don't feel the fact that I can just raise my hand and ask questions naturally, right? I don't feel that that interpersonal interaction. And I think that... That's what we've been seeing in these COVID times, right? We kind of take it for granted, the, yeah. that relational component. We say, yeah. it's my professor, they're here, it's what, it's cool, you know, I, it is what it is, right? But 
in during these times when we're online, it shows us, wow, that relational component, just sitting in a class with other people and having their presence around me and having 80 other people who are all trying to learn with me, that affects my desire to learn, right? And, mm -hmm. and as, if, yeah. as people, we're social animals. We don't exist in a vacuum. When we take cues from our surrounding environment, when we see people learning, we want to learn, right? When we see people engaged, we want to be engaged. When people laugh at a joke, we laugh at a joke, right? And that you can't put a price tag on and that you can't really replicate, at least not yet, in an online environment, right? And so I think that we're going to be, the, 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 this will push the trend further towards online education, but it won't be as drastic where you're going to see whole degrees offered online just yet by UCR or things mm. like that, right? That Will that come in the future in 50 years? Probably for my grandkids, it wouldn't surprise me, but not today, not in the next 10, 20 years, but there will be a push, a greater and greater push towards online education, I would say. Okay. Yeah. I Just to kind of touch on that and, and this kind of barrier that comes across from having um, having something be online. It, it's something that I've definitely noticed. I mean, even even for myself on a day-to-day -day kind of basis, like it's it's this, one, it's like you get this weird sense of like uh, individual, I'm an island. Mm. I'm like, I have to exist in this kind of weird way, you know, because it's, it's, you're in front of a computer, you're at home, and this kind, this separation between like work and home balance and all this stuff mm. is just completely eviscerated. Sure. It's gone, it's gone entirely. Um, I know me personally, I, I spoke about this last week as well. It's like, I could never do online classes. <laughs> yeah. um, and that that's just me. Like I went sure. through all of my educational uh, time uh, going specifically choosing to only do stuff that would put me in a classroom with the professor mm -hmm. because of the things you're talking about. These little mental barriers, again, the way where it's like, if I'm sitting in front of a computer and now if I want to ask a question, I have to either signal that I have some kind of question, whether that's putting a thumbs up or something in like Zoom mm -hmm. or something like that, um, or mute myself and then risk that delay between, mm. you know, speaking and the professor speaking. So then I'm, I'm in this weird kind of like, oh, I don't want to cut someone off. So mm -hmm. then I just don't. Sure. And I, I catch myself doing that now, even when, when we have our meetings on Zoom, it's like where I don't want to, I, I try to like time it perfectly mm. to like, okay, I think he's going to stop talking right now. <laughs> so go now, now. Like, and that's, that's when I shoot my shot really sure. to, to try and talk <laughs> yeah. that's when i shoot my shot to, to try and talk so it's like not usually using that context but i like that i like the term not yeah yeah, the yeah, yeah. i've ever heard that yeah in that context, usually not using that context, is that not so what I appreciate it is it. yeah <laughs> well, okay all right um so that, that's when i try uh, that's sure. when i go for it but like if i'm in a classroom at any point I, I could be thinking about something and just like shoot my hand up sure and or I don't know, just started screaming out. Like, I don't know, how was I when I was your student? Would I just scream occasionally? Uh, I mean, not great. I'll just say that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, these were great. These were both great students that I very much enjoyed teaching, and they're paying me to say that. So, just for all the viewers out there. But um, I'll, go, I'll go ahead and Venmo him. The uh, yes, yes. No, but you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. And I think part of it, part of it is right. It's a lot of it is in terms of kind of expectations and kind of how we grew up, right? So, for us, right, we grew up in a classroom setting. All of us here probably grew up in a classroom setting from K to 12 and then for most of our college experience. So we grew up accustomed to that, right? And, and I think in terms of, you think about, for example, another trend nowadays, right, where, for example, for kids nowadays, they're not used to things like writing in cursive or they're not mm -hmm. used to things like yeah. writing on a, ta on a piece of, on a notepad, right, taking notes on a notepad. And mm -hmm. so... For us, it feels weird to like take notes on a tablet. It, it's the, it, we have to yeah, learn yeah. how to do that, right? For them, yeah. they don't have to learn it. They're just used to that, right? And mm -hmm. so for us, we kind of have an, a lot of people will say, you know, I can't really think unless I have a notepad and I'm actually jotting down notes. I can't take mm -hmm. notes on a laptop. I had to mm -hmm. jot them down, things yeah. like that, right? And so it's because that's how we grew up. That's our expectations. That's how we were raised and trained, et cetera, and educated. And so it makes me think a lot, right? Like, so for us, we well, even for us, we're kind of on the, on the, on the very periphery of, of online versus kind of 
in-person education, kind of on that edge, right? And yeah. so it makes me think of for the next generation, for, for students 20 years, 30 years down the line, where they're much more used to that. They, they're used to having classes online. They're used to having their education online. Our kids, our grandkids, right? They may not have those same barriers, those mental barriers. They may yeah. be like, yeah, this is how we do things, right? We have classes online. We, we learn online. We, I raise my hand in, in, in a virtual chat online and things like that. And so for them, it may not be weird. They're like, yeah, this is, it's weird to be in person, right? And so mm-hmm. it's yeah. one of the things where you might see kind of that cultural divide almost, so to speak, right? Where our kids, their, their kids will say, yeah, this is just how things are done. But for us, we say, we remember a time when it wasn't like that and when mm-hmm. we had to be in a class with 80 people, right? For it to feel normal. So it'll be interesting, interesting to see from that perspective, how future generations of college students, how they interact with that technology, so. Okay. Um, and, and going to another kind of conversation when it comes to the future of education, um, obviously, the, there's the battle between online education and in-person education. But then the other part is I've been doing a lot of gap analysis on like what universities are kind of lagging behind on. Sure. One of them is course curriculum. And that's because of the, how fast technology moves in markets and different jobs are getting created and previous jobs that existed are no longer there. Sure. So what, what do you believe that like the future of like curriculum development? Because, you know, especially UC, it's the research facility. It takes a while to get a course approved. Sure. So do you think that because of how fast the market is moving, that universities are really struggling to catch up. So what kind of curriculum should they be building out? Oh, that's a, that's, yeah, that's an interesting question because it's actually something that's been talked a lot about in different forums, uh, you know, in, in the, just the general public, right? A lot of people nowadays are feeling like my education is kind of useless in a way, right? I got mm-hmm. this degree and I'm not, I don't, and I think the common kind of refrain you see when you look on LinkedIn or Quora or Twitter or just any of these public forums is that people feel like, I got this degree, but it was, it was useless. I, my job's not even related to what I do, right? I think that's, mm-hmm. I think the stat from what I saw maybe a couple months ago is that 60 to 70% of people say that the degree that they got is not actually not correlated with the job that they now have, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a yeah. huge gap, right, in terms of what they're learning versus what they're actually using. And so how do you narrow that gap? Because when there's a huge gap like that, people feel like, why should I go to college for it? Why should I spend hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars getting this education if, you know, it's not gonna produce any kind of tangible outcome for my life that I can kind of see basically, right? So so I think part of the issue from what from just my own thought process and just kind of being in a university setting is that a lot of times when you think about the curriculum, we're kind of teaching to the trends, right? We're, so if, if SEO is popular, we're teaching SEO, right? Which is mm-hmm. good, there's nothing wrong with that. But as we know, as things come and go, trends come and go, right? Before people used to use radio ads, before they used to use newspaper ads, if you got your education and that's what you were learning in college, that's useless nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. there will come a day when SEO, we may be saying, wow, that was such like an archaic thing, right? Well, people don't do that anymore, right? Things like that. And so when you teach to the trends, uh, you, you fall, the, the danger is that when those trends become outdated, your, your, your degree becomes useless, right? So not saying that teaching about, you know, about, about search engine optimization is not important. It is very important, right? But I think that maybe what we as faculty, and it's really the burden is on us as faculty, right? That, that, that this, this, is, this is something that we need to think about more is how can we teach the kinds of traits and the kinds of talents and the kinds of skills that you need to be successful, mm-hmm. no matter where your career is, right? Because mm-hmm. you may be majoring in psychology, but you may end up working at a tech firm, right? You yep. may be majoring yep. in sociology, but you end up working at I don't know, a museum or something like that, right? So you have to find, we have to find ways to teach people, students, traits, skills, abilities that will kind of transcend wherever they go in life and that they can find useful for them. And that will be uh, principles that they can kind of generalize across across time, right? And we're not very good at that. We don't think that. We think, I guess, 
the classical education model is take the textbook and teach that basically, right? Mm -hmm. Rip it out, rip out the chapters and then put that on a slide and that's what you teach basically, right? But the thing is that we forget is that textbooks go out of date all the time. (laughs) The textbooks of 10 years ago, no one uses that material anymore, right? No one learns from those textbooks anymore, right? But we're still teaching that kind of material, right? We're Mm -hmm. not teaching, we're not teaching material that's relevant that will always kind of be kind of uh, up to date and and, and kind of what what students need no matter where they are in in terms of their generation basically. So we don't really think from that perspective a lot. I, I think, you, yeah, I, I agree with basically everything that you just said right now, like start to finish. And I, I think I, one thing I want to bring up when you um, were talking about this sort of onus on administration and professors and all that stuff, I, I think that, thank you very, <laughs> for, for putting some onus on yourself. But at the same time, I, I don't think it's entirely a professor-centric kind of problem. Sure. Um, I think a lot of this comes from this uh, this idea that you bring up, this sort of we're on the fringe right mm, yeah like i i remember I, I think we all remember you know learning cursive doing all these like little things that are no sure. longer happening mm-hmm. um and now and now it's 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 gone but we were on the edge of that sure. so i think what's happening is you have this weird mentality of like oh we have to still teach the traditional things sure. for some reason it's still there this sort of traditional approach oh it's what we taught before it's what we can keep teaching prior and, and i think that an understanding that needs to happen and I think it's obviously easy for us to say as, as students sure and, you know just I think easy for us to say as students really but there is a sort of trend this trend happening where you have like older things like print media and all this mm-hmm. stuff uh, and strategies that work for print media where they're they're trying to take those strategies mm-hmm. I say they very wide as, as uh, people who are teaching this stuff but you're trying to take this antiquated format uh for dispersing advertisement, just general information, and just mm. uh, converting customers, and you're trying to now put that into digital, mm. and I think that's where the big issue is. You have so you have people uh, like myself the, in the sixty to seventy percent where I graduated with a marketing degree, mm-hmm. um, and I love my degree. But the thing that I got from my degree was not learning the very nitty gritty about marketing, like sure. you know, like what is it like the three P's or something like that, whatever it is. I, like that's like, I don't think five about P's. that. Five P's. Exactly. <laughs> I was about to say, come I on don't, now. I don't. Exactly. No. Honestly, to a D. No, no. It's too late. I, I, I got, I got I'm my degree. I'm very ashamed right now. I got oh my, my degree. It's too okay. late. You, you already, <laughs> I already got a Janet's we'll signature see, on we'll my see what the, We'll see what the shark can do about that. I already got Janet's signature. You got like something like the five P's or the five C's, whatever it is. You have that. Yeah. You have that. And it's like, I don't think about that ever, ever in my, maybe Maybe I sure. think about it in a in a sort of um, like a non-conscious kind of way, where it's like that's just kind of floating in the back of sure, my brain as, sure. as a sort of theory. Um, but all the stuff that I that I practice on a day-to-day basis, it's stuff that I had to learn how it's being done sure. currently, not sure. not this sort of theories that worked um, during like you know the industrial boom, like sure. the, or, or during you know the 80s and stuff like that. Like yeah, a lot of marketing trends at the 50s, the 80s, these are these are moments in marketing history where, you know, you have like the Mad Men and then in the eighties <laughs> you have, um, well, I think throughout the fifties yeah. and sixties, um, you have advertising actually coming into fruition, like legitimate mm-hmm. advertising coming into fruition. And people are still like, they're, they're still pointing at that for some mm-hmm. reason. They're still mm-hmm. looking at, at those times and saying, yep, that's how you do it. You have a big meeting, you come up with a bunch of marketing collateral and advertising collateral that hits every single demographic that exists in the whole mm-hmm. wide world. Um, wide net wide net where it's like nowadays what's happening and and what's not being taught is you have to be able to look very very like cellular 
with all of these sort of demographics and that that's what's like behavioral science exactly behavioral science and and all this stuff it, it's not if i look if there's any professors <laughs> listening right now that's really what it is like yeah stop sure. stop looking like obviously you're there's bias because mm-hmm. when you go and when you go to school and you learn about this stuff you are picking up the things from the 50s from the 60s from the 70s and be mm-hmm. and into the 90s that are being taught that are being taught over and over and over mm-hmm. and over and over again mm-hmm. and it's obviously changing and it's tweaking but it's still the fundam the fundamental theory comes from that era yeah yeah i understand that psychology um that is a thing that is pretty solid um when you're thinking of psychology but when when you try to take again these these advertising kind of routes uh into 2020 just like don't <laughs> like th- think about it like actually think about it and say what is what is popular now what is trending now what science has come out that did not exist then sure. what what is happening in behavioral sciences what's happening in geospatial technology yeah. what's happening in all these sort of things that then makes sense for not advertising and marketing right now but what makes sense for advertising and marketing in 20 years because that's what they did back in the day to come up with these theories. They looked not right now, but what's trending, how we can, sh- how we can, the markets are moving. exactly how the markets are moving, how, how brains are functioning, how people are doing it. 20 years ago, I didn't have a smartphone that just pumped ads at me 24 <laughs> seven, <Non-stop, yeah>. nonstop. <laughs> um, now I do. The only thing, the only medium that's changed has been my phone. People mm-hmm. are still putting, they're basically just billboards. So people are still treating them like they're billboards when they are not billboards anymore. You can't mm. just put an ad that says, you know, call this hotline now to get more information sure. about something on an ad. Sure. That's not going to work. You have to, you can't be wide. There's mm-hmm. certain things that maybe, you know, maybe yeah. you can be pretty certain wide brands, reaching. Exactly. Sure. But you have to be able to change um like small think small when it comes to advertisements and that's something i think that isn't happening and that, on- that onus isn't just on professors that own that onus is kind of on the industry as, yeah. as a whole sure this sort of this weird panic that exists of like we need more advertisers we need more marketers we need more x y or z just teach them what we can teach them and then shell them out and they'll figure it out on their own sure um that's fine that's all dandy but that doesn't always work um my biggest thing that I took from UCR, not the the 20 C's or whatever. Um, <laughs> my biggest thing that I took from UCR was being able to critically analyze something mm-hmm. um, where I can point at something and I can say, um, how does how would that singular thing in a vacuum impact something else? Mm. You know, is is this a dependent or independent variable? What mm-hmm. what is this changing or how mm-hmm. is this changing something else? Mm-hmm. That I think is the biggest thing that I, that I picked up. Being able to to critically analyze something. Um, that I think should be the leverage that's being used, being able to look at something, critically analyze something, and then position that in a way that extends into future tech. Using the five P's. Using using (laughs) the 15 P's, yeah. yeah. And and getting that, 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 again, that is my thing. That's my big thing when it comes to like um, new curriculum, online education. I think the future of technology, it's like we're at a turning point right now where... technology has just grown so quickly that you we have to I don't say I'm not going to say scrap it you know I'm Mm -hmm. not going to say like get rid of everything but stop resting on your laurels you know like and I say this as the industry as a whole um like the the reason that certain companies can get away with doing some more malicious things and taking advantage of uh certain social media platforms in a way that maybe particularly affects political stuff in a way Mm -hmm. um is because they are leveraging future tech. They are looking ahead and saying these like psychographics, uh, 
geospatial technology all of these things are things that are in the future and things that we can leverage and make it good that is where it should be going Pe yeah. people look at something i'm speaking obviously of cambridge analytica people look at cambridge analytica and they say evil evil bad bad um but that is the future that like that advertising ethically it's efficient <laughs> yeah that's the thing they maybe weren't so ethical but they were leveraging tools that exist now yeah. that advertisers are not using now they are but advertisers were not using back then because it was like ah we're, what's uh, what we're doing now is working but what they did didn't just work it it worked beyond sure. it revolutionized what what what's happening mm -hmm. you know um I, there's a lot i think that's a really good point that you bring up and <clears throat> i think if I were to summarize from, from what I'm getting is, is I think as faculty, a lot of times what we do is that we teach concepts, but we don't teach the critical thought behind those yes. concepts, right? And so the three C, the four, oh my, I'm <laughs> thinking, oh my goodness, oh my gosh. Um, the four Cs are, some things are fundamental, right? Like, so when you think about psychology, cognitive dissonance is a theory that was, that was relayed 50, yeah. 60 years ago, but it's still fu fundamental to today. Absolutely. So some things don't change, right? Even like the three Cs, four Cs. <laughs> I'm gonna think about that a lot. Um, when I in my car ride home, the four C's, right? We still think about that today. We think about who are my consumers, who are my competitors. So we yep. still think about those things today. But how it's being taught is: here are some concepts, learn them, memorize them. That's all. Yep. But there's critical analysis that needs to put be put into that, as Luis was touching upon, right? How does these how do these levers affect my, the, the five P's later on, or four P's? How do they how does one thing affect another, right? How does one cog affect another cog in the machine, basically, right? So we're yeah. not training our students to think about that. We're just training them to say, okay, here are 20 vocabulary terms, go memorize yeah. them. Mm -hmm. Cool, right? But then people but like you said, the vocabulary terms they get outdated, new things come up, right? And so it's being able to take the fundamental concepts, learning how to apply them critically, and learn how to apply them critically to the technology of today. That's really yes. if you can do that each of those three steps you will have a, fun, a good fundamental education. Yes. But the breakdown is because w one of those steps is missing. Either you're not giving them the core concepts they need, you're not teaching them how to use it critically, which is where a lot of education falls apart at, or you're not teaching them how to use it critically in with the current kind of trends of today, which is also where education falls apart yeah. at. So we're really good at this first part, we're not really good at the second or the third part, which is why we're seeing dis dissatisfaction like Luis was mentioning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think obviously like there's, um, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm thinking about how to say this. There's <laughs> certain professors that do it better than others sure um you are sitting in front of us today <laughs> you do it better than others <laughs> thank you <laughs> uh, so it's you know it, I, I and i think i think you touched on that second part the second part of being able to not just um get the information and make sure the fundamentals are there but also get students in a way where they can think critically of mm -hmm. the materials that were presented mm -hmm. in a way that makes sense for today mm -hmm. obviously when you learn the fundamentals you're gonna learn when where the fundamentals were created sure. in their own vacuum sure. obviously like w whether it's whether it's the um 17 c's or whatever yeah it's something that gets put it's something that you learn in a vacuum you sure. know you learn this is what happened this is the person that made it and these sure. are the fundamentals that they learned mm -hmm. now do you have that understand that fantastic let's uh put it in a way that is applicable for today and mm -hmm. i think you did a fantastic job at that whether it's mm -hmm. whether it was the project um where we had to come up with like a very like very detailed advertising plan for mm -hmm. a specific brand mm -hmm. um that it, that already like you teach the concepts mm -hmm. and then you make us do it in a mm -hmm. way that is for today you don't say you don't say hey here's the vocabulary learn it fantastic now write a 15 page paper sure on this on this concept you know mm -hmm. uh <laughs> write a 15 page paper on this concept I, almost, I, almost, I feel like there's uh, some shade being thrown at certain uh, yeah, professors I, I, almost, I almost put a little more detail in there but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna hold off there um, you don't say that and then 
instead you say, here are the concepts. Now, present them to me. Sure. Present them to me in a way that if I were, like, for example, we did Samsung mm-hmm. um, for my project when, I, when we were in your class in advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, present this phone to me mm-hmm. in a way that makes sense if I was someone to be in a position to pitch this towards. If I wasn't, sure. if me as, the, as a student was coming to you as the advertising company and you were kind of Samsung, you, mm-hmm. you rated me on how the presentation was, if this is something that would work as advertisement, mm-hmm. whether that's the copy, whether that's the group of people that we're going towards, whether that's the avatars or the um, the personas that we create. Mm-hmm. Um, like all of these things are, that's, that is stuff that I use. Like yeah. that is stuff that I use today. Sure. Like creating personas, um, figuring out who to advertise towards mm-hmm. for specific products yeah. demographically and exactly. geographically. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, and that's, so thank you for that. Appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think if we could do that and we could be better at that, yeah, that would really help students out tremendously to kind of take timeless concepts and apply in current ways. That, yeah. that that's the goal. That's the kind of the gold standard of every education you could get, but we fall short of that. Every party kind of uh, who's part of the education process falls short of that to some extent. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the other, I think, gap that exists in education is that uh, courses don't relate to each other. So what I mean by yeah. that is that they're so siloed out that sure. um, even if I did do some application in that class, if I don't understand how I take a consumer behavior class and then apply it to the advertisement, that, that's a disconnect with a lot of students because we, we go through, all right, here's the core classes we have to take. Here's our concentration classes mm. we have to take. Let's pick him out in order so I can survive through the the (laughs) four years and I'm not overworking myself with the classes. And you're not taking them with any logic behind it. So, for example, somebody who, to be very competent in business, needs to understand how marketing is going to impact supply chain to then impact like a, like a for example waiting time at a, at a Starbucks sure. and then from that you have to understand like managerial accounting of how you can calculate if it's a profitable <clears throat> model like that's what a, somebody in business should learn how to mm. connect mm. each siloed topic together mm-hmm. and I think that's the one part that I yeah. really wish that universities like go really hardcore on to be honest because that would solve a lot of the disconnect that i think students have when they go to a professional job is that when they get there they're like wait there's these different departments these all work together this this (laughs) person's gonna give me the information to do this yeah i'm in marketing by using numbers that's weird yeah 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 Yeah. no and i i totally agree with that sentiment i think so in my ideal world, if I were planning out, a mar- let's say, a marketing student's education, right, I would say, okay, the first thing you need to do is understand your consumer, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to take a class on consumer behavior. You need to understand the core concepts of who are my consumers, who are these people who are shopping at my stores or online or whatever. And then from there, you need to get a hold of the numbers, get a hold of the data, get take a marketing research class, an analytics class, so that you can say, my consumers are telling me all these things, how can I now kind of decipher it? How can I interpret it? How can I use marketing research techniques to interpret it? And then from there, now that I have all these insights from the consumer because it's very data-driven, then I can take an advertising class and see how that drives advertising, how that drives, uh, you know, online uh, digital marketing and things like that. Because so people think digital marketing is different from marketing research, different from consumer behavior, different from, you know, business analytics or whatever. But like you're saying, Val, it's all connected with each other. There's strains of connection between everything, right? And a faculty are not doing a good enough job of kind of of kind of uh, kind of showing that. But b like you said, for students, our goal. And I was a student once too. What classes can I take just to have the easiest schedule? What classes can I take just to, to get out of here and you know in four years things like that? We're uh, students. We often don't look for how can I take these classes with an intent to actually learn and to actually see the connections and to actually get a well-rounded business education. So yeah, that's a very accurate for sure. Yeah, because I, I it, it just transfers over every single area of business. And the more that they get interconnected together, the more holistic view you have as a, as a marketer, as you brought up, 
every marketer needs to understand consumer behavior because sure. it, it doesn't matter what part you're doing. If you're doing uh, web design, if you're doing SEO, anything. SEO is based off search queries. So if you don't know what people are searching and the sure. behavior behind it, you can't be really good at SEO. If you sure. don't understand how people behave on a website, you can't really be a good web designer because you're not designing the website based off that actual consumer's yeah. uh, journey. So um, that's where I really do wish that that education, once again, like goes towards because mm -hmm. I think in an online setting, that's actually the one thing that online has over in person mm. is you can adapt classes quicker and put projects in between courses mm. to then give a student the big picture before they try to go into the professional world. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that is an advantage for sure. Yeah, I uh, just t touching on that as well is like, I, I think it would also alleviate this sort of um, mentality within, I know during my time at UCR, there was this big mentality of like, what classes can I clump together mm. so that I can do the least amount of hard work at any one given time. <laughs> so like you don't take 102, 103 together yeah. unless you want to die. Yeah, you know, sure. Like you, you, you space them out. Um, yeah. And you, you do these things to kind of build. Um, you, you're not building your classes based on what you want to learn. You're building your classes based on two things, really. Um, ease of passing mm. um, as well as these sort of um, biases that are tossed your way mm -hmm. as an incoming student and as someone who's registering for classes mm. of like word of mouth like oh don't take these classes together mm -hmm. or don't do this or don't do that when in reality it's like if you were in if you were alone and if sure. you were just looking at the classes and reading the descriptions I think what would you do you yeah. know like I, I, I'm willing to wager that the behavior would be completely different yep. if you didn't have that kind of stuff and you didn't know the workload that was going into it you would go based off of Strictly, oh, this looks interesting to me. Yeah. This is something that I want to continue to learn. Um, if you had series of classes, that would eliminate that. That would just be like, you have to take these classes first, mm. and then you have to take these classes next, and then these classes next. Yeah. It's not a thing of, let me pick and choose how everything's going to go. Like, obviously, like, I understand that's kind of the college way, mm -hmm. you know? But, like, I'm thinking, if you are someone, like, the first two years, you do your, your undergrad classes, mm -hmm. uh, your breath classes, you're done with that stuff. But then your last two years when you're in the school of business proper, that should be, you should have to have series. Like, sure. do you want to do marketing? Do you want to do, uh, do finance do or something? Finance? Yeah. Exactly. Something like that. If that's the case, um, there should be like two or three classes that you have to take sequentially. Mm -hmm. not, sure. not this sort of thing that's happening where you take a class as like your base class and then you go off into these like different smaller pools. Yeah. So you go off into, you know, whether it's uh, marketing analytics uh, mm -hmm. through behavior um, uh, you know, w whatever these other classes might be, where instead it's like, oh, I want to do marketing. Okay, well, do I want to do marketing in, do I want to do more analytic sides of marketing? Do I want to do more mm -hmm. uh, consumer creative. facing, creative? Like what are the, what are the options that are given to me? Mm. And then how can I pick and choose maybe two or two or three of those and then follow that path all the way through from yeah. concept to um, content basically, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. From concept to con content, go, go through this whole thing and not make it so kind of, oh, I don't want to take this class because it, I heard it's hard. Yeah. You know, it's like every, every class should be hard if you're actually trying. Yeah. Um, or, you know, it should be difficult. I wouldn't say hard, but it should be difficult. It should make you think. Yeah. Um, sure. And I think I think that there's a big issue at UCR where you have, and I'm sure you two can speak on it, yeah. where you, you have this like, Oh, I don't want to take the class because it, it's hard. Mm. You know, it's like, what do you or it's at nighttime or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's like too late for me. Mm -hmm. It's like, get out of here. Like, you yeah. was like, well, you're paying for this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> like, yeah, that's something that really disappointed me during my experience at mm. UCR where it, I think, I don't, I don't know if it's because of the classes themselves, but I felt like a lot of, 
people's mentality was like, I just want to pass. I don't like not. Mm. I want to learn. Yeah. Mm. Um, I kind of fell into that for a little bit too, but eventually, like, I I started looking for classes, and I specifically chose classes that I knew would be harder,、mm. so that I would get something out of it.、Mm. But I'll talk a little bit about <clears throat> my college experience a little bit. I was actually not a marketing. You both are、mm. marketing, right?、Um, I was not a marketing concentration. I was in I was in IS concentration.、Mm. Um, but to this day, I always say I'm a IS and a marketing、mm-hmm. because. I feel like back then, two years ago, one and a half years ago, the IS program did, taught. It was more of like a digital marketing program、mm. because it was like it kind of melded the two things together. I didn't learn how to code.、Um, <laughs> <laughs> to I, I, this day, I have to write the code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.、Uh, so,、um, you know, I, I I feel like the only thing that IS name did for me was kind of get my foot in the door. Sure.、Um, like the company I worked at. The, Uh, tech consulting job that I had, I, I kind of I got the job surprisingly to my like, to me, and when I got in, I was like,、oh, I don't know any of this stuff. I didn't learn any of it,、mm. and you know, it's like I I could have right, and I, I I was left in the situation where I had to figure everything out on my own. You know, things like user stories or just like、mm-hmm. consulting and working with clients and stuff、mm-hmm. like that. Um, and now I'm a full-time UX designer,、mm-hmm. and I learned none of that、um, in class. Everything was like taught on my own.、Mm-hmm. Um, the two marketing classes I did take were study when I was studying abroad in Hong Kong, and、um, so one of them was a digital marketing course, and I didn't learn SEO, I didn't learn social media. All I learned was like television and print ads,、mm-hmm. and so I, you know, I, I was kind of left in the situation where it was like. Okay, I, I I learned I the people I'm sitting with right now. This is the best thing I got out of this、mm. university degree, which I I wouldn't have it any other way. Don't get me wrong. Like、mm-hmm. that was my big in our fraternity. I met this guy at Getaway drinking a glass of beer. <laughs> <laughs> That、Some、tends to be how you know, <laughs> the old partnerships are created. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and today we're all sitting together. We formed a company, and we're having this podcast together.、Sure. And we wouldn't have that without this university degree、mm-hmm. that we all have. But Um, you know, I'm really hoping that the future kind of turns into everything that we're talking about now, where everything is so much more practical. It's、mm. like if in one class I'm analyzing Amazon and how they did their digital marketing. I hope that the next class I can take that and expand on the marketing or how they. I don't know, adjusted their finances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like that part is the biggest thing marketers need to learn is. There's a constant battle between accounting departments and marketing departments. Yes. Oh yeah. Very true. Hundred percent. Yes. That's very true. Because、yeah. accounting departments are like, you only have this budget. Marketing's <laughs>、yeah. like, well, what the result you want to、yeah. have? Because I have to、yes. base it off of what、yeah. that end result is, and the, like learning that, I think the joke is everything. Yeah. The joke is literally the marketing department is just there to, to waste money. Like, <laughs> it, that's it.、Uh, the marketing, the ever, the、uh, accounting department exists only to rein in、mm-hmm. to.、Uh, To rein in the、uh, marketing department, because、yeah. if not, oh my goodness, we would spend every every dollar, every penny.、Absolutely. Every penny. As an accounting、oh, yes. concentration, I feel the tug right now in, in my <laughs> in my in my heart. Yeah, between these two things, but、uh, you know, I, I agree, and and that goes back to Luis's point actually really well, in the sense that you know when I think about my college experience, obviously I didn't even learn all the things I needed to know for what I'm doing, right?、Um, mm-hmm. And even when, so, when I was a grad student, I took a lot of classes in statistics and analysis and. And I even when I became a professor, I still had to learn different tools and techniques because、yeah. I didn't learn them in class, right? But I think that if we taught students, so I guess the bottom line is, you'll never learn everything you need to <coughs> learn 
ever for your for your career, right? Yep. But if we taught students how to find information, if we taught students how to certain uh, kind of abilities and skills, right, in order to yep. make themselves feel competent, to make themselves feel like I can go out and be a competent employee, I can find the information I'm looking for, I have the resources, the know-how, the critical thinking skills, the kind of the the understanding of how to better my better my skills, look for information, etc. That would be really useful, right? But we're kind of what we're doing is we're kind of saying. Okay, here's, I guess the, the analogy, right? Do you teach them? Do you teach a person to fish, or do you give them the fish, right? That's kind of the, the, the analogy mm-hmm. that people always use, right? We kind of do the thing where we're like, okay, here's a fish, go survive for the next 50 years of your life, right? When we should be teaching people how to fish, so that they can always come back, get, you know, kind of sustain themselves, learn new things, like you were saying, learn new skills. That would be the more sustainable way of doing things, but we're not quite there yet. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lot. I mean, if if I could change one thing. Like very like objectively change one thing from my education. I think you would agree with this, Val. Um, I loved the analytical side of marketing, mm-hmm. um, and I think that stems from I have a very genuine fascination for with people, mm-hmm. like why they make the decisions they make and that, and, and all that. And, and but I think educationally, I, I think. By, by myself naturally I have that fascination and I constantly am looking at new ways so I'm, I'm reading books about habit formation I'm reading mm-hmm. books about behavioral economics I'm like all these things that that kind of feed that part of my brain so like it's weird to me it's like I don't need educational help with that mm-hmm. what I wanted help with was like you say like how do you then get that concept and then critically analyze it mm-hmm. so if there was one thing that I think they could add at UCR and if UCR if you're listening Mr. <laughs> UCR sorry or Mrs. UCR it's Mr. Non- and Mrs. yeah Mr. and Mrs. UCR um, teach marketing students how to code Python. Sure. Teach yeah. marketing students how yeah. to how to do teach all business students how to do it. Yeah. 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 Honestly, that's, that's which, very true. Because now, which is why I always push everybody take Professor Richard's classes, take yeah. IS classes, yeah. learn how to code. You don't have to learn how to do all of it. Just uh, learn the fundamentals. Be comfortable it. with yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. I, I talked about this last week, but I started learning Python. How's it going? I want to blow my brains out. <laughs> I, <laughs> I. It is the most complicated thing, and like I. It's the uh, statistics that really get me because I was good at, at stats. Mm-hmm. I was fine at stats. That's all fine. But like, I haven't used stats properly mm, since sure. what, four years now, three years now. You know, it's <laughs> like you don't really use statistics yeah, in, in business. Um, yeah, unless you're in like finance and accounting and stuff like that. So now I have to, like, I'll look at a problem for like how to for coding, and I'll go. I have no idea how they're getting these like this probability stuff. So then I have to go back, learn statistics, mm. go back to the thing that I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's going. I mean, it's <laughs> it's a bumpy bumpy uphill road, but it's mm. eventually. I'm I'm giving myself a year to be able to take a take a data set um, or a data notebook and be able to come out with just a bunch of different things. Mm. But like I'm yeah, it was like between like, all right, do I go and spend like fifty k? And get like a mm. uh, master's in mm-hmm. like data analytics, mm-hmm. um, or do I just say screw it and try to see if I can learn it on my own? Sure. I'm going with learn on my own <laughs> right now, and but it is, it, it it's hard. It and I think that the nice thing is that I think that's a great thing to touch upon because a lot of times the reason why students I think we mentioned this briefly the reason why they shy away from taking these hard classes, learning how to code is because they feel like, man, I can't do that. That's just too hard. I don't mm-hmm. want to spend my 10 hours a week learning, trying to learn this, yeah. right? And so even at, at when we pick classes at consumer, we almost are like consumers, right? We're like, I want the best experience possible. I want the most pleasure possible, right? Yeah. So we're yeah. consumers in a lot of ways, even when it comes to picking classes. 
when maybe we should be thinking about, right, this more in terms of like taking a, a, a Peloton or a, a, a Soul Cycle kind of class, right? Where you know it's gonna be painful, but you know you're gonna feel better afterward. You know mm -hmm. that you're challenging yourself to get yep. to where you need to be, in that case physically, but in this case mentally, uh, professionally, et cetera, right? So I remember, you know, when you teach students stats, right? Even though stats is very difficult for a lot of students, how to use, you know, RStudio or how to use uh, Stata, right? Mm -hmm. Students don't like knowing how to use these things, but when they see the code come out, when they see it work, when they see the results, they're like, oh, that's really cool. I, I see how the data now informs our thought process, right? Yeah. And there's a sense of satisfaction saying, I challenged myself, I pushed myself, and now I'm able to actually produce something that of worth, right? So if we as students had more of that mindset to say, you know, I'm gonna go learn Python, I'm gonna go learn, you know, these, these yeah. stats packages, it would make our education a lot better if we had that kind of that different way of looking at our education, for sure. Absolutely, and I think that that kind of comment segues pretty nice into into our next little topic here um so cutting into consumer behavior a bit right mm -hmm. um one question that, that it's been kind of festering in my brain and we kind of talked about it a little bit when we had our conversation uh about like a month ago sure um was what changes in consumer behavior do you think have come about because of covid um like and realistically like how have habits really shifted because mm. of it you know it's like humans they're we're habitual creatures like at the mm -hmm. end of the day we do everything for the most part exactly the same as we do the day before which is why advertisers are so good because they're like oh around this time he's going to be at work let's just send him a bunch of ads about like coffee and stuff like that so he'll go down to starbucks and get a get a starbucks that's next to his his, uh, his workplace um oh he's on the way home let's let's shoot over a recommendation for a podcast like all because mm -hmm. we're all habitual we do the exact same thing over and over and over again mm -hmm. um but i'm curious is like how you think that has shifted uh, mm -hmm. because of covid Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there are, I think, and this is one of those things where we're going to see the effects of this for the next 20, 30 years. The, the, what has happened over the past six months will have consequences for the next maybe six decades. Who knows? Right. A, a long time, basically. Right. And so, uh, and so I think one, there's, a, there's a few things that, that I think that we're going to see a shift towards, at least for the next five to 10 years. I think one thing I, I think uh, is a lot of the companies that are going to do well, a lot of the companies that are going to, to, be, to be able to sustain themselves, they're going to have to be able to communicate their value very clearly, right? And so as consumers have less and less disposable income because they're losing their jobs, they're getting their hours cut, things like that, what we're seeing is that it's kind of like the survival of the fittest right now, right? A lot mm -hmm. of companies are going under, a lot of companies are, are on the ropes right now, and the ones that are surviving are the ones who, who can say, we have a very clear value proposition for you, right? We, we can show you exactly how, where your money is going and, and how it's benefiting your life, right? And so a lot of times consumers, when we have a lot of income, a lot of wealth, we just kind of tend to buy whatever, right? Like, oh, I'm at the store, I'm gonna buy, throw this kind of little trinket in my, in my cart, spend 10 bucks on it, I don't really care, right, if I throw it away. But now consumers are really thinking, well, how can I find value, right? How can I get things of worth, right? Things that will actually benefit my life in some way. And so for companies, we, part of the reason why we hate advertising is we hate all the fluff, like all yeah. the kind of the exaggeration and just the kind of like the, all the, the, the in your face stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Now as a company, you need to be able to show people that you provide them value, that you provide them something that they want and of worth. So I think that's the first thing. And then I think the second thing is at, at, for companies, um, I think one thing that, that companies are re really getting to do well at is showing these consumers that you care about them, right? And so I think um, companies, we they, they kind of have this reputation of just taking our money and we're kind of okay with it. For the past 50 years, we've been okay with it because we realize you have something I want, I ha and, and I need to, and, and, and I have something that you want and we have this transaction, right? Mm -hmm. But companies that can show you, 
us consumers that hey we care about you hey we're looking out for you right hey that we we're not just trying to get your your hard-earned money we're actually trying to do something that's for your well-being that's very important right and so i think that's from the from the company side right those are a couple things i can think of just on the top of my head that companies will need to to, to be better at from the consumer side i think it's interesting uh, one thing that I, i read recently was that Lego, because of everything that's been going on, partly because of everything that's been happening, Lego has actually been targeting adult consumers more because mm-hmm. ad- we've been staying inside more, right? And because we've been staying inside, we're kind of looking for things to do. And so Legos are kind of like the adult puzzle, so almost so to speak, right? So mm-hmm. you, you buy a Lego set, you build it, you spend 10, 20 hours building it, right? And that's kind of something to pass the time. And so mm-hmm. Legos are actually selling very well in, in today's economy because uh-huh. they're a great kind of solo activity that you can do in the comforts of your own home, right? And so from a consumer standpoint, I think what we're going to see is that we're going to see a lot of consumers finding ways to do things by themselves, right? Finding finding hobbies that are a bit more solo or a bit more a uh, single person and so to speak, right? And, and being comfortable with that, right? And so uh and so I think we're seeing we're going to see that trend more uh t- towards towards that for consumers is is hobbies, activities, products, right? That can, that, where people are now used, I'm used to being by myself at home. I'm not scared of sitting on my couch for eight hours a day by myself, right? I don't need to have all this human interaction. And so companies that can say, hey, we have a product for you. We have a service for you. We have value for you. Uh, that's something that consumers are really gonna start gravitating towards, uh, I, I would say. And so, yeah, so those are the, just a couple of the things that I see kind of maybe coming about over the next three, four, five years, right? Uh, and I think, um, from the educational experience, right? Going back to that, thinking about students and what they're gonna major in, I think what we're gonna see is a lot of students majoring in, starting to think more clearly about what should my major be, right? Mm-hmm. What should my kind of graduate degree be in, right? And we're gonna see, actually another trend that we're seeing is that a lot more people are applying for graduate degrees right now. Yeah. There's yeah. been a huge uptick in people applying Absolutely. for their masters, their, their their JD, their MD, whatever, because they feel like, I want to actually go get a graduate education and kind of wait this out, right? And so mm-hmm. we're gonna see people being a bit more careful and cautious with their educational choices and think more clearly about, should I pursue my education further? So those are a couple things that I can see trends that, that, that we're gonna be kind of pushing forward in the next five, 10 years, so. The Lego point is super interesting because uh, a few days ago, um, so one of my favorite podcasts is um, Robin Hood Snacks. I listen mm-hmm. to it like every morning. And the other day they brought up how um, Nike, their best-selling shoe right now is the Air Force One, which huh. came out mm. in what, the 80s or the 70s something or like something like that. Yeah. that. And basically what research has found is that in times of like, times like this where we're in an economic recession and um, COVID is in the air, people do, people prefer to go back to nostalgic moments basically, right? Mm. So the Air Force One is such a nostalgic shoe. Legos, everyone played with them when they were yeah. younger. So um, that's a super interesting um, point there. And then another thing too, the other day I saw that Walmart has completely, um, they're changing up their design of the store. Mm. and not only inside the store, they're marrying that with the app experience. Mm. So what I've seen is that they're kind of, they're taking from airports actually. Mm -hmm. And inside the store, they have like big signs with like arrows kind of pointing to each department. Mm. Um, And the app, if if you're using the app, um, it will guide you to exactly where you need to go. You set up your shopping cart, it'll tell you, you just go left here, Mm -hmm. go right here to pick up the things that you need. So that's, the least amount of steps possible and basically keeping everyone at a distance. And at the same time, it's cutting out browsing, you know, mm. and browsing. Um, I don't I don't shop in store very much, but what I was interested to find that a lot of people love going to Target mm. because of the browsing experience. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. Like, oh, yeah. I think they had a, 
a whole re in-store redesign like a couple years ago when the new CEO mm -hmm. came and it's just like super luxurious and nice looking and stuff. So that's changing now. Mm -hmm. um, another cool thing Walmart did was that they have painted their parking lots and put numbers on each of them. So if you if you go on your app and say, I wanna pick up this these things um, from Walmart, you go to the parking lot in your numbered spot and a Walmart employee will know when you're here and they'll come right to your car mm. you open the trunk, they put the stuff in, you're good hmm. to go. Um, so that was really cool to see. Yeah. It's like they're, Walmart is kind of, for one thing, they're kind of trying to one up Amazon right now because <laughs> they have these stores. But um, I feel like other places are gonna start following suit, but I'm interested to what you think. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, and it's one of the things like we talk about predicting the trends, right? Companies that will stay afloat are those that will predict the trends. That they'll predict where consumers are going, right? Um, and and you talk about kind of how Walmart is kind of changing its physical structure in order to better accommodate consumers, their fears, kind of their motivations in 2020. Um, and so I think one thing on the topic of Walmart, one thing I saw that was interesting a stat was that over the past couple months, Walmart's best sellers have actually been their tops: t-shirts, blouses, mm -hmm. dress-up shirts, and they actually have not sold. And you would think, okay, well, that means that they're selling a lot of, you know, pants and jeans. They're actually not selling a lot of pants and jeans. They're selling a lot of tops, basically, because people are only being videoed from the from the top, from mm -hmm. the from the kind of the belly button up, right? And so they're selling out of all their t-shirts and things like that, but they're not actually selling out of like their jeans and they're just their pants and things like that. And so, as marketers, when you think about this point, right? You think about, okay, uh, as as a company, what are where are our consumers going, right? What is is their workspace going to look like? What is their kind of life work kind of balance going to look like now, right? So. Over the past 10 years, we've been seeing kind of this push towards something called athleisure, for, just as an mm -hmm. example, right? Where people are saying, I want outfits that kind of fit at home and also at, at, at work. I want it kind of that, that blend, right? So Lululemon does it very well. That's why people love them, right? Oh, yeah. that, that kind of fits all the sectors of my life. And so I think when you think about this, right, when you think about in 2020, by investing in a $1,000 suit is probably not a great investment for a lot of people when you're mm -hmm. working at home three, four days a week, right? You probably don't need that. But a lot of companies feel like that's still what we sell. It's what we've always sold. It's what we always do. So we're going to continue to sell that. It's what we do well. Yeah, that's great that you do that well. But if you st stay by that, right, you're going to get passed by by everyone else who's offering yep. things that people actually need in their daily lives. They don't need a, a three-piece suit, a five-piece suit anymore. They need something that they can get up and go and, and look presentable in when they're at their job, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think companies believe that Oh my goodness! If I can't make keep making these suits, my value is going to be eroded, right? Well, if your if your value was in that suit, then you're probably never going to last for very long, anyways. Your value is should be in what can we do for our consumers? What kind what kind of quality can we provide them? What kinds of what kinds of experiences can we offer them, right? What kinds of of kind of uh, of, of you know just kind of uh, consumer experience consumer journey can we take them on? Those are the things that, that you should be thinking about as a company, not you know. And so I think something that. One of the greatest quotes from uh, one of the greatest kind of innovators of all time, uh, Henry Ford, he said, if I had asked the American people what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So he understood it's not about what they want, it's about what they will want. That's yep. what we need to think about, right? And yeah. so companies that can innovate and think about what will my consumers want because of what's happening today, what will they want in a year, in five years, in 10 years, and then innovating towards that. Um, and that's part of the reason why um, just as another kind of company anecdote, Under Armour has been struggling a lot over the past 10 years because they have not innovated, right? Mm -hmm. They did not get on the athleisure trend. They did not jump on that boat. And because of that, by the time they said, okay, this is actually a thing we need to think about, Nike, Adidas, Lululemon had all passed them by. And so 
so the business world is very cutthroat. If you're not constantly on the, the cutting edge, kind of I think one of the themes that we've been talking about, if you're not on the cutting edge, right? If you're not thinking about the trends and where, and where consumers are going, you're gonna get left behind in five, 10, 20 years. It's just the yeah. natural order of things for sure. And, and do you think that just stems from companies just being complacent because they're so big? Do you think that's kind of the issue? Because like for, I mean, we're all entrepreneurs. So like we, we always like to see that entrepreneurs can pivot and move very quickly and they can yeah. they can solve these problems quickly. Mm -hmm. But as do you think that this problem really is just more coming from organizations being so big mm -hmm. that they just become complacent with the market and they're just like, eh, it's fine. And then they don't mm -hmm. really want to innovate because they think that they have a big bankroll right now. That's a great question. And I think it, it I mean, corporations are, are composed of people. And so really when we think about think about why is this happening is we need to think about the people and what's going mm -hmm. on in their heads, right? So it goes back to consumer behavior in a lot of ways, right? And so I think that when you think about a lot of these startups and a lot of these, these, these and you think about a lot of these companies, right? The first, I, and I'm not a big startup kind of uh, a guru, a, a genius, so I, 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 I'm still learning a lot, but for the first like five, 10 years, right? They're still trying to figure out what will be successful? What are the things yeah. that we need to do to be to, to, to get off our feet and to actually be have value that consumers want, right? And so they're figuring that out and, and they're doing a really good job of that. But at a certain point in time, there's almost kind of like a, a, a breaking, a, a turning point where you say, okay, we're at, we're, 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 we're at a good spot right now. We've accomplished our goals. So let's just keep doing what we're doing now, basically. Mm. Let's just keep on this track, right? And that's the danger. When you say, let's just keep on this track, that's a very dangerous place to be in because yeah. you'll be successful for the next 10, 20 years, sure. But then when someone else can provide value, that they will they will lap you. They will you know, they'll kind of take your spot, right? So consumers are very fickle. They don't like the same things all the time. They're constantly looking for something new, something great, something innovative, right? They're constantly looking for the next big thing. Consumers are not very satisfied. They're not very content. And but the the problem with companies is that they become very content, right? Yeah. And they're thinking in their mindset. They say, we've been doing this for the past ten years. It's gone us to where we're at. And if we change something, right? If it doesn't work out. We're gonna kick ourselves, right? If it does, if if we change some component, just thinking about cognitive dissonance, right? Or thinking about kind of buyer's remorse, all these kinds of things, right? If I change something, if I do something and it doesn't work out, right? Man, I'm gonna feel really bad about myself, and I don't want, and I'm gonna feel like I screwed the company over, right? So, mm -hmm. companies that are that that are successful are willing to take risks and to, to innovate, to get better, to improve, right? And to constantly trying to find the next cutting edge. But a lot of companies feel like I found that cutting edge. I found my kind of my, my kind of blue ocean, so to speak, and I'm just gonna sit there in the middle of it and just kind of wait it out, right? And then before they know it, other competitors come in, they float along, and then they float right past them, basically. Yeah. And that's a problem. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think I brought this up a few times now in these podcasts, but Google's model for the way that they well Alphabet, excuse me, Alphabet's model for the way that they allow their businesses to exist as like these kind of sole companies, yep. I think is the smartest way to do it. Mm -hmm. Where you have Alphabet proper and that just kind of puppeteers everything else, but then you have like the smaller spinoffs, whether it's like the Gmail team being its own team, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, Stadia being its own team, like they all exist within Google, mm. Google Gmail, Google Stadia, um, Nest as well, like every, like the Nest Cam, the hardware department mm -hmm. versus the software department, they all exist within their own ecosystem mm -hmm. and that allows them to pivot and to look at trends a lot quicker. That's a great point, yeah. Um, and it's one of the reasons I think why Google's so, like they get a bad rap for just like, oh, something comes out and then like two years later or a year later, it's canceled. Sure. You know, but it's Ooh, like, yeah. like we talked about consumer video. Yeah, 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 well, yeah, sure. <laughs> but but it's like, it's like, yeah, they do that because they need to test it. They're, mm -hmm. they're doing, um, they're doing with product, um, and I guess service to some extent, what um, advertisers do with A-B testing. Mm -hmm. yeah. They put something out, they test it. If people pick it up and change something else, then they keep doing it. If nothing happens and no, there's no, the growth isn't there, then it's gone. I mean, I remember I listened to um, 
an interview with a product designer uh, in Google and like a project manager. And he said, I, I'm trying to think what project it was. Um, dang, I can't remember the project exactly, but he, um, in the pitch for the project, when they went to the, high, the higher ups, when he pitched like, oh, we need $10 million to do this project. And they were like, all right, here's $10 million. Um, he told them, we're gonna get you a 25% um, oh no, a, a return on your money in the, in the next two years. So mm. you're gonna get your $10 million back in two years. Um, he said, had we um, been short even a million dollars, had we been short $10, mm-hmm. does not matter. Google would have canceled it because mm-hmm. the growth projections that they need in order to green light a continuation of a project mm-hmm. just were not met. Like mm-hmm. the fact that I think even when projects are met, they're still kind of like, all right, let's be a little apprehensive. Let's mm-hmm. we'll continue it, but let's let's see where it goes. Whereas you have some projects that just hit the ground and just take off. Sure. Where those obviously keep going. Whether that be, I mean, I guess they didn't create YouTube, but when they acquired YouTube, um, growing it in the way that they are growing it, whether it's like oh, YouTube TV is another thing. Like mm-hmm. that is like something that was created internally, and it's it's shown growth, so they keep doing it. Sure. Um, and I, I think that's one of the cool things about, about Google and, and Alphabet, excuse me, and the way that they go about doing their business. Um, with us as well, like one thing that we want we want to implement in the future is having a, a percentage of our yearly revenue mm-hmm. attributed specifically for um, like future tech, basically. Mm-hmm. Micro startups. Exactly. Um, so these like micro ideas where we can say, okay, let's just say like 15%. Mm-hmm. Here's 15% of our, of our annual revenue um, we're gonna pull this aside, and this budget is only purpose is for for investment in future stuff. Mm-hmm. So, whether that be um, a student, a business um, at UCR that is growing, or in Riverside proper that is growing, um, and we see potential in that, we'll say, here's some funding money. You know, mm-hmm. here's some money, make it happen. Mm-hmm. Like we believe in this project, we believe in what's going on. It also exists internally, where we can then say, okay. Um, we see that the trends are kind of going this way. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we don't want to put all of our eggs in this basket. So let's put some of our let's put some eggs in this basket and see if that starts to grow. Mm-hmm. And if it does, then we'll start shifting more resources towards it. Sure. Um, that I think is one thing that a lot of businesses don't do mm-hmm. is they don't have this kind of slush fund that exists mm-hmm. specifically for innovation and growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that touches upon a good point in the sense that a lot of business. So it's it's a weird thing, right? Where what it's almost like the it's it's almost like it's almost like the human life cycle too right where when you're a, a, a kid and a teenager you're willing to take risks you're willing to go throw yourself out there and, and try whatever right and then somehow as you get older you become more risk averse you're like you become set in your ways you don't want to go to that new restaurant anymore you don't want to go try out that new kind of uh that new place right yeah. and it's the same for companies too i think right the first 10 20 years of their existence they're like let's take risks let's do these things let's go let's go try these things right and then somewhere along the way when they built up their nest egg they're like we, I'm not sure if we should do that anymore, mm-hmm. right? Like we have paychecks, to, we have mouths to feed, we have salaries to pay. Should we really kind of take those risks, right? And so, sometimes one thing they forget is that that fail, that that willingness to fail is what got them there in the first place, right? The willingness to say, "Hey, we're gonna ha- we're gonna roll out these ten products. We understand and we're okay with the fact that two of them may fail, the fact that three of them may fail, the fact that all of them may fail, right? We're okay with that, right? But people, and, and maybe this is a societal thing, this is a larger thing, right? We don't like failure, right? We don't like to, to be a part of failure, right? But failure is kind of the thing that pushes people forward. And uh, and, and so um, and so I know we're, ta- we're gonna talk about that uh, in, 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 in later on, right? But we're scared of it, right? And so yeah. um, and so I think it's one of those things where uh, if companies adopted that mindset of saying, we're okay with failure, and we're, we're okay with, with, with an, in advance knowing that this product may fail, and we're, 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 it, there's nothing wrong with that, it would help to push innovation further, faster. 
absolutely um so i, I have a question here from twitch um what do you think in and out can do to keep growing being that they are the trademark burger stop in california they're looking pretty complacent right now <laughs> that's a there's a that's can, a good question can i can i just say this yes. too i'm a hunt like look i might get i might get just the most amount of hate i've ever gotten in my life for this uh-huh. I will take Shake Shack over In-N-Out any day of the week. Any uh-huh. day of the week. Give me Shake Shack. Put it in my okay. veins. Oh, my God. They are so... Look. In-N-Out, animal style, good. Okay, fine. Dandy. Fantastic. Shake Shack's burger? Mm-hmm. It, was, it was like a religious experience when I had my first Shake Shack burger. Like, I love... Like, burger's probably my favorite food of all foods. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why that's, that's the case, but I just... It's nostalgic for me for some reason. In Mexico, they have the best burgers. I, I can go into a story about it, but I won't. The only place I've had Shake Shack is in Hong Kong, just Okay. okay got it. No, nice little, <laughs> nice little travel bomb. There. That's, that's cool. And Hong Kong was fun. Um, I did too. So you're the only one out on this situation. Dude, that's a nice Shake Shack, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's a really good one. I actually really enjoyed that. Oh, one. Are, are we name bombing our, our Shake Shack experiences? Uh, no, we're not, because I would go into a whole. Okay. Long all right. Journey. All right. Um, no, yeah. I will say this. Yeah, let's talk about. And the reason I think is because they're they're lazy. They're not doing anything anymore. Like mm-hmm. Shake Shake Shack has like. A bunch of different kind of burgers. Roadkill. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They have a bunch of different kind of burgers that you don't have to like, oh, I know an insider secret, like, oh, mm-hmm. secret menu. Like, no, it's like, hey, it's it's on the menu. You can order stuff off the menu. You can change it up. But I agree with that question. I think I that's kind of going. I think In-N-Out is getting complacent. And I think that um, I pray for the day that Shake Shack is within 30 miles from me because that mm-hmm. is when I die from cardiac arrest. <laughs> <laughs> I go down the way I've always wanted to. <laughs> burger with the two burgers in my hand and one like, like burger sauce seeping from my mouth <laughs> oh man um yeah oh wow um i don't know how to follow that up but uh but you know that's that's a great question whoever asked this um i yeah, and it's interesting um and so this this almost goes into into an idea into the idea of branding right and that mm. and that's what that's why this is such an interesting question because it's not purely just consumer behavior anymore this is now kind of an idea of brand image and so the thing about In-N-Out, and the thing that, we, from my understanding, right, uh, the reason why they've done so well is because they are very clear on who they are. Yep. They know exactly who they are, right? And so you think about life, right? You think about the people that we like in life. When someone knows who they are, we tend to gravitate towards those kinds of people because they have some sense, they have a confidence, right? They have mm-hmm. they have the sense of I know who I am, and I don't I don't kind of back down from it, and I don't kind of change based on the situation, right? So there's there's a sense that like, oh, that's kind of an attractive quality to have in a person. It's also an attractive quality to having a brand as well, yep. too, right? When a brand knows who they are, right? And so on one end of the spectrum, you have Carl's Jr., who are, are in and out, right? Who never changes their menu, right? And who literally has the exact same things all the time. On the other end of the spectrum, you have in- Carl's Jr., who literally every two months will have some new burger, some yeah. new amalgamation, some new <laughs> fried pickle burger with salami, <laughs> with, you know, egg, with, you know, horseradish, whatever, something along those lines, right? So. Yeah. And you say, well, why isn't Carl's doing well? How come they're not? How come they're not doing better, right? Because they're innovating. They're do, they're they're constantly changing with it. They're constantly changing their menu, right? They're adding, I think, beyond meat options. They're adding vegetarian options. They're adding, um, you know, uh, uh, all these kinds of different kind of value offerings for consumers. But how come we don't go to Carl's if In and Out's right there, right? And so I think that we've been talking about all these things about the need to innovate, the need to 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 uh, uh, to, uh, you know, to 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 kind of to be embrace failure, right? That's well and good, of course, but if you don't even know who you are to begin with, none of that really matters, yeah, right? If you if you don't know who you are, you don't know what your brand stands for, if you don't know what your core values are, right? 
none of that really matters. You're just someone who constantly is trying on new outfits, so to speak, without really knowing what your style is. And that's the thing, right? You can try on a new outfit, but you need to know what your style is, right? That, I guess yeah. maybe that's the best analogy that 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 that, 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 I, that I can I can give give you, right? And so, and so, I think that's in and out, right? In and out knows this is our value. This is what we offer people. This is what we're good at, right? And this is what we're sticking with. And so, and so, when you think about in and out's value and, and what and what they give to people, what they really give to people, right, is the the best quality products. Uh, at, with the best customer service. That's kind of my paraphrase of, of what they do well, mm -hmm. right? And so when you think about that, and you think about innovating in terms of that, we think of innovation in terms of give us give us chicken options, give us fish options, give us whatever. But that's not in line with their value. That's yeah. not what their value is speaking to, right? It's not, yeah. their, their value is not, if their value was, we want to innovate and, and give you the most exotic options, then yes, give people fish, give them chicken, give them vegetarian options, et cetera. But if their value is, we need to find the, we need to provide you with the best quality meals with at, at, with the best service possible. Then you need to find ways to innovate along those dimensions, right? Mm -hmm. So how can we offer you an even better burger, an even higher quality burger? How can we offer you a better, you know, whatever, right? How can we offer you a better ordering experience? Those are the kinds of things that In-N-Out needs to be thinking about, right? In order to kind of constantly update and, and change its and, and kind of uh, change with the time. So we think of innovation like this, but. But innovation in terms of products, it's well and good if that's your value at, at the start. If you're someone who's saying, we always innovate, we always want to try new things. But if your value is, we provide you with the, t the tried and true um, kind of burger, but we do it better than anyone else, then you need to find ways to innovate and do it better than anyone else. You can't just yeah. be offering the same kinds of meat. You can't be offering the same quality of meat. Find ways to get better meat. Find ways to get better products, ingredients, etc. That's how to innovate in their case. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot to be said. Um, for the lack of options and sure. we've said this multiple times but sometimes not having a lot of options in a sense is freedom like sure. the freedom from having to think about am i gonna get this this double what was that one from kfc where the chicken was also the bread the double down yeah that oh, abomination sure, of, sure. of creation oh, man, i had a heart attack right <laughs> yeah it's, <laughs> it's a thing yeah it's yeah, a so, thing yeah so here's yeah, the thing yeah. that you eat that and then you just cease to exist that's <laughs> usually what happens yeah um okay. so there's a bit of freedom in that and and, sure. not, and going to in and out and not being like what am I going to get from In-N-Out today? Sure. When in reality, like every time I go eat Thai food, guess what I get? Bad Thai. Every time I go eat any food, what do I get? Chicken tikka masala. Like it's like, sure. I know that there's a bunch of options. I know that I can get like some sack paneer and I, or I could go to Thai and get like some uh, Pad CU or something like that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I know what I want. I know what I like. I know what's tasty for me. Mm -hmm. And In-N-Out, I think removes 99% of mm -hmm. all of that kind of option where there's what, three or four things on the menu? Yeah. You know? And you can get a grilled cheese, but you got to ask for it. It's not on the mm -hmm. menu, you know, but it's like these like little things sure. um, that make it very simplistic and make it kind of easy for you as a consumer to look at and go one, two or three. What do you want? Yeah. yeah. But I, I think the one thing that in and out their strategies based off the brand. And and mm -hmm. like I said, I, I agree that the simplicity is actually the best thing that in and out can mm -hmm. do. And they should focus in on how can they just make the simplicity exactly. better yeah. and the more convenient, the customer mm -hmm. satisfaction there. But I think the one side that in and out is completely messing on is if it's brand oriented company, they should really go heavier on their merchandising side. They should yes. go heavier yeah, on the experiences because sure. they, exactly, they have yeah. a lot. So why don't they just do drive-in movies and have an additional ticket sales there? So they have sure. so many other ways to innovate outside of just the core part of Pro the business. The food but, itself, yeah. Exactly, and then emphasizing out their brands. So I think that's the part that they're very complacent on because they yeah. don't they're not innovating there. Yeah. They're really focused on what their business is right now, yeah. but I think that's where as a company they need to look at in the next 10 years because if like they're that, just yeah. relying that's on burgers, point. that's also in sales will go down. Like yeah. eventually it will go down. Like yeah. consumers yeah. will change based off that. So that's your that's your bread and butter of your business. Unfortunately, it's not going to sustain either. So. Yeah, and that's a great point because whoever asked this question 
part of the reason why you go in and out is for for the burger. Don't get me wrong, right? But it's for the experience. Like I'm transported back to the, this nostalgia to like the 1970s kind of like vibe or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas like feels like oh, I'm kind of in this like red and white bricks, you know, burger joint that my parents went to and that my grandparents went to, right? So that's really what you get, right? And that's really kind of the the, the value that you, that you, that you're kind of buying into. And so if you're in and out, really kind of hone in on that and really kind of dive into that, right? Offer them the t-shirts, offer them the, the nostalgia that really kind of really kind of jumps into that and really kind of, you know, really kind of provides them that whole body experience, right? So to speak. Yeah. And so I think that the best companies don't just give you products, they give you experiences around those yep. products, right? And so when you get, can give your consumers an experience, a, a kind of a full-fledged, ex, a kind of just experiential aspect to it, your value will last much longer. Products come and go, but people experiences right. They, they they tend to last for people, and they tend to yeah. be a bit more sticky. And so you'll see a lot of a lot of you know a lot of uh, teenagers wear the In and Out T-shirts because they want that experience and mm-hmm. they want yeah. that kind of nostalgia. They want that kind of like image, so to speak, right? So if you're In and Out, there's nothing wrong with leaning into it further and actually mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, you know, and kind of, kind of, you know, using that, like you said, to expanding maybe instead of into food options, we're expanding to selling more merchandise like Branding. that, and having that be more part of kind of what you offer your consumers. Now, does that mean that Internet starts offering hype beast kind of materials? So like, start, <laughs> Absolutely. Like you got to make a partnership with Supreme. <laughs> yeah, and you got to get the Internet. Dude, Honestly, oh that would sell so goodness. well. Yeah. I would buy one. Yeah. I would actually buy that. I would. So. <laughs> I'm not a Supreme yeah, fan. Me. Sure. Yeah, I'm not a Supreme fan, but sure. I would buy that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So Professor Rich has a couple of comments in LinkedIn. So oh, good. So. First comment, so counterpoint, there has been a lot of mention of nostalgia during this episode, Lego, Nike, etc. In-N-Out may not be targeting the customer who wants new burger options, but instead the customer who wants a classic burger. Um, second comment, In-N-Out's secret menu is like when JCPenney took coupons. Customers appreciate the fact that they are in the know, regardless if the secret menu isn't actually secret, or in JCPenney's case, the final price after coupon was always the original optimized price. Sure. Wow, honestly, he knows way more than me, honestly. Uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Rich. If you're, you're, I know you're watching this round, thank you. Um, he should be here, honestly, instead of me. But, uh, um, you know, what- Two I, weeks, we'll have him. Okay, uh, uh, what, I'll, what I'll say to that, that's very true, right? In-N-Out, um, it, in, that's one of the things that maybe In-N-Out kind of lucked into, so to speak. They might not even have planned for it, right? But it's almost something that they kind of lucked into in the sense that, like, they created this, 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 this sense of, like, Almost secrecy, like almost like if you know in and out, if you're in the know, right, you're kind of in the know, right? And, mm-hmm. and not every company can, can kind of create that. And maybe they didn't intend to do that. I don't know. Maybe they just kind of happened upon that. But the sense that if you tried it in and out, it's almost like a badge of honor. It's almost like something that you can say, I've done, and that most of the people in this country have not tried yet because yeah. it's just only in the Western kind of part of uh, of the US, right? So there's almost a sense of like, like, like man, like there's a, that I'm special in some way. I'm, I'm a part of a secret kind of, uh, kind of, uh, uh, kind of, you know, uh, for, fraternity for lack of better terms in some way because I've had in and out and so they've tapped into that maybe unknowingly and that's actually helped with their mystique like Rich was saying and that's a great point for sure not every company can do that not every company can play to that and so um and so yeah they're one of the few who can actually lean into that for sure mm-hmm. there's also no, no, no. yeah there's also another question in the chat this is a different topic um so this is from Villian I hope I'm saying that right with advanced technology and the ever expanding internet, we have all a lot of the tools and resources at our fingertips. As higher education is evolving, how do you decide to go back and get a master's or additional degree, especially since we're speaking a lot about the flaws in the system and what we're being taught? So this is from like early in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Didn't want to miss that though, so. For sure. Can you read the question one more time? Because it's a very detailed one that has a lot of components, it sounds Mm -hmm. like. Yeah, so as higher education is evolving, 
how do you decide to go back and get a master's or additional degree degree especially since we're speaking a lot about the flaws in the system and what we're being taught oh that's a really good question yeah. um and first off Villian, thank you for asking that question. So Villian was, uh, if I'm, if this is the same person, she's one of my first students in my first class ever. And so that, that class holds a very special place in my heart, all the students in that class. So uh, thank you for that question first and foremost, and for listening. Uh, what I will say uh, though is, so th on, on the topic of a graduate education, um, right? And so I think a lot of times when people think of a graduate education, they think in terms, of, and, and you can speak to this ha mm -hmm. having gone your MBA, um, they think in terms of, I want to get all this knowledge. I want to get more advanced knowledge. I want to get further learning. And that's very true. You will get, you know, further understanding of complex topics and you'll get to dive into these topics that you learned in your undergrad at a, at a greater kind of depth, right? But a lot of what you get from a graduate education is the environment and the people around you. And a lot of what you get is everything else around you, right? And so um, when students think about graduate education, when they t and they ask me, hey, should I get my graduate degree? I don't just ask them, are you ready academically? I ask them, are you ready socially, right? Mm -hmm. Are you ready for this experience socially? Because part of what you're paying for is exposure to all these people who are gonna be successful one day. All these people who are like you, who think, who are kind of high high achieving, high, high, high level thinkers, right? And to be associated to, with them, to be affiliated with them, to be able to leverage them and to use them and in your networks, right? That is a lot of what you're paying for, for, that, for the professors and the professionals and the students, et cetera, right? And so, when you think about our graduate education, you want to think about it holistically when you make that choice. You don't want to just think about the knowledge that I'm getting. That's very important and that knowledge is very valuable, but you also want to think about the social component to it, right? In terms of, am I ready for this as, as a professional? And I know your, her question was more of in terms of if the knowledge that we're getting is faulty, if the knowledge that we're getting is, you know, is, is, is not kind of up to date with the times, right? Should we still be pursuing this graduate education? And what I would say to that um, is, First off, at the graduate level, um, and so I think at the, going back to, uh, to our kind of earlier discussion, when we talk about what is it really, what is it really important to teach our students? The critical thinking, critical analysis, critical thought. You get that way more at the graduate level yep. than you do at the undergrad level. At the undergrad level, you get fill in the blank, multiple choice, Scantron. That's what you get. At the graduate level, you get how can you take this case study you've been reading and now apply it to a new company, apply it to a new business, apply it to your own life potentially, right? Yeah. You get more of that kind of critical thought and analysis. You're not, hopefully, and I'm, I'm saying this to all the faculty listening, hopefully at the graduate level, you're not giving your students multiple choice tests anymore, right? <laughs> hopefully you're not doing that, but you're challenging to think in terms of, we've taken, all, we've, we learned all these concepts in class, we read all these case studies, we learned about all these companies, how do we now apply, take that and synergize it with other things that we've been learning and then apply it elsewhere, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you do more at a graduate level than, than at an undergrad level from what I've seen. And so from that perspective, your graduate education will challenge you more critically. It will challenge you more um, kind of in terms of thought, in terms of academics, in terms of kind of just uh, how you see things in, 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 the, in, in business, but also in the world, right? And so you develop those skills more so in, in, in graduate education. So it's valuable from that perspective, but it's also valuable from the perspective of that social component. And that's part of the reason why you need to think about your graduate education. How can this help me socially get to where I want to go, the networks, the people, et cetera. So it's both those components that you get. And so I, I'm sure you could probably agree and speak to that as well too. Yeah, no, I would, I would definitely say the, the, the educate you're gonna get educated and that that's that's definitely like why you're going to grad school but at the same time that should not be the the, the decision of what grad school you go to or why you're doing yeah, exactly, it to be honest the, exactly, the reason yeah. you should be the way you should be choosing your grad school is 
what do I what do I want this grad school degree to allow me to do? And is the network that I'm get plugged into allowing me to get there? Exactly. And, and I, I would actually even challenge anybody who decides to go to grad school, don't just look at the grad school program for the area. So if you're going for an MBA, don't just look at the MBA, look at um, the other departments at the university. So mm. look at like the engineering department, look at the music department. That's actually why I chose to go to UCR was mm -hmm. because of the complementary uh, departments that exist. And they're technically siloed right now. Mm -hmm. And I use my time during my MBA to actively network with those different departments sure. because I know in the professional world it, it's more beneficial to me actually to know those computer scientists sure. to know those engineers to know a PhD in music that we're starting a startup based off of like those things but like the idea there is that would not have happened unless I chose UCR specifically and I didn't and I chose to get outside of just the MBA school AGSM and go out to the other departments sure. to network with them talk with them um, and, and find complementary skill sets. And that's a great point, right? And it's going back to kind of what should you get from your education, it's not just about the classroom, it's about everything outside the classroom mm -hmm. as well too. The people, the de other departments, right? And so when I, when I tell students, what should you be looking for from a, your graduate education? What kinds of factors? People will always think like, okay, I need to go to the place that is close to home, or I need to go to the place that where I get financial aid. And those things are very important, don't get me wrong, but things like, What's the alumni base like? How yep. strong is this alumni yep. base? How, how connected can you be to people who've come before you, right? Location, do you wanna live there for the, for the next 10, 20 years? If you don't wanna be in the Inland Empire, going to UCR for your MBA may not be the best option, right? Maybe if you wanna be in, in LA, then go to USC instead or mm. something like that, right? So location, in terms of the classmates and what kinds of classmates are you gonna be exposed to, right? Mm -hmm. Every school has a different culture. Every school has different kinds of classmates, different kinds of students, different kinds of just environments of learning, mm -hmm. right? So what kinds of things are, are, gonna, are, are you gonna be exposed to? Departments, right? If you're someone who's no, who knows, you know, I want to study these things, right? What are the departments like? The psychology department, the sociology department, right? Uh, what, what kinds of connections can I build there? You wanna think about it holistically. We think about it in terms of just what textbooks am I gonna read? But to Villian's question, you wanna think about it holistically about all these different components. That will give you the, the best kind of solution in terms of what to, whether to go to grad school or what grad school to go to. Yeah, um, touching on that as well, it, it kind of is something that we talked about last week um, with JC, where it's and it kind of it brought up, it got it got brought up when I was talking about me going back for potentially my master's or learning it on my own and doing something like that. Um, is this idea of like going to like a boot camp yep. kind of mm -hmm. thing, you know, where it's like you have. Um, learning it on your own, which is free for the most part. Obviously, you can pay for courses and stuff like that. Um, you have a boot camp, which is kind of that intermediate kind of space where you can go anywhere from a few thousand dollars up to like thirty thousand dollars for a boot camp, mm -hmm. or you can go to uh, to graduate school. Sure, and you can do that, and you can spend an absorbent amount of money sure. um, at grad school. But it's this kind of balance. We have to. I think for you, you have to figure out what it is that you want to get at the end of, at the end of the road. Yeah. Exactly. What's, what's your prize? Exactly. Um, do you want to make a um, an industry shift. Do you mm -hmm. want to go from what you're doing now to a completely different industry with a completely different set of standards, day-to-day -day activities, and things like that? If that's the case, if you just want to make more money and work in a different field, or you want to work in tech and, as opposed to or work in nonprofits or do this or do that, um, finding a boot camp that's going to not just put you in that network, but also teach you how to actually do the job that you're going to be, that you mm -hmm. want to pursue, I think is the best way to go. Sure. Mm -hmm. If that's your end goal, if your end goal is solely to change the job that you're doing now and also probably make more money, sure. you know? Um, but if you have this kind of burning desire to answer theoretical questions mm. uh, and figure out not just how to do that thing or how mm -hmm. the thing is being done, but also figure out why is that thing being done that way and why is it 
that this is the most optimal way to do it and maybe challenge those approaches, then yeah, go to grad school. Yeah. Um, it's one of the reasons why I, I think, well, you're, you're still on the fence, but me and Val want to go back eventually mm -hmm. for PhDs. It's like, mm -hmm. um, we want to do that because there's questions that we have in our brains that we want to answer. And we think that the best way to go about that isn't going to a boot camp where someone's going to tell us how it's being done. It's going and researching the stuff on our own. And challenging it. Exactly. And challenging it. And so what I always tell students is that when you think about your undergrad, it's kind of assumed that you're going to get a degree at this point, right? Like yeah. in, in, in where we are as a culture, right? You just assume I'm going to go to college, get my four-year degree, and it's just kind of the baseline of what I need, right? So we just all kind of go mindlessly to get that bachelor's. But when you get at the graduate level, you better have a good understanding of what can this can this can do for me. Like Luis mm -hmm. was saying, you better have a good functional reason for why you're getting this, right? Yeah. If you're just going just to spend two years just to, you know, further your knowledge, is that the best thing you can do with your $100,000? Because that's a lot of money you're spending, right? <laughs> oh, it's, yeah. it's not pocket change to spend that kind of money. It's life-altering amounts of money. So you want to think twice and you want to think carefully and you want to be able to say, at the end of these two years, here's how it's going to help benefit my life. Here's how it's going to make my life better. Here's how it's going to help me to move up in my company, get, get a raise, get a promotion, you know, change careers, things like that. And so, so that's why I would say, make sure you understand what are the benefits, the, and the tangible benefits of what I'm doing. And, yep. and, and is it worth that opportunity cost because when you do this, I, t I tell the students all the time, but you gotta think it's just not the sticker price you get, it's the opportunity cost of two years of lost income and lost wages yep. that you lose out on. So yep, yep, yep. is it worth it, right? Is it worth it? Because the analogy I always give, that's a really nice Lamborghini, right? Which one do you rather have, the MBA or the Lamborghini, right? Yeah. For, for, for some people, they say, hey, I don't need that MBA, I'm gonna get the Lamborghini, right? But mm -hmm. it's, it's basically what you, what you need to think about. Yeah. 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 It's really how you need to frame the question, actually. Yeah, so. that's, that's a good point. I mean, you think about it like this, it's you can go get your MBA, straight mm -hmm. out, of, straight out of, uh, of undergrad, and that might mean not only are you spending 100 grand, but now you're also missing out on a potential salary of anywhere from forty to eighty thousand dollars. Another hundred grand, almost basically. exactly yeah. a yearly. Yeah. So theoretically speaking, just double the cost of an MBA. That's mm -hmm. your that's the opportunity cost. Sure. To go in to get that MBA, anywhere from one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand um, dollars, is what you're kind of missing out on. Mm -hmm. Not to talk about the interest on student loans, which yeah. is absolutely ridiculous. But yeah. That's that's yeah. another beast that's of its yeah. own. So yeah, even if you have a hundred thousand well, uh, debt, me, you're gonna go two hundred thousand in debt. Yeah. Me, uh, we can talk about that later when the cameras are off and we have a bottle of whiskey in your hand or something. Like that. And yeah, uh, I, I mean, I think that's why I'm like more leaning towards like more of a like a shorter program, like a boot camp, right? Because um, I mean, I'm a UX designer and I want to learn more. I never learned sure. it formally. I kind of just taught it all to myself or learned it through experience. But I feel like two years not actually, I mean, sure, I'll get projects and stuff where I'm putting it in practice and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I feel like if I can learn what I need to learn in a much shorter amount of time, maybe a few months, six months mm -hmm. or something, then that's what I need, right? Mm, and, yeah. um, but I'm still on the fence on it because it's like you learn more in those bigger programs. It's it's just a really confusing situation. Yeah. And it's the same it's deal with network. Like you can yeah. you can go to a $5,000 bootcamp and you'll learn how to do the stuff um, and they'll try to get you a job mm -hmm. or they'll try to give you the tools to get a job mm -hmm. if, you, if that's what you want. But then you could go to a $30,000 bootcamp and it's like, oh, no, you're going to go work for like Facebook or Google mm, as like a UI yeah. UX person. You know, it's like you have that balance of like, OK, what's and again, it all comes back to like, what's my end goal? What do mm -hmm. I want to see myself sure. doing? Uh, do I want to go work for one of the things? You know, mm -hmm. do I want to go work for uh, to, for these companies mm. or do I want to just hone in my skills for UI UX yeah. um, and implement it in my own business? Sure. It's this kind of tug, tug of war. Um, but I, I do want to get back to consumer behavior. Um, I, I know, Thank you I know for the nice segue. Thank you. Yes. I, I know we, uh, I know we shied away from it for a little bit, but, um, one thing that's been on my mind a lot and you talk about like these like things that I want to research is, um, 
the idea of like big data, right? The idea of big data at first was just like, oh, big data, look at all this data we can collect. And think about all the cool applications we can use for it. That was five years ago. Mm -hmm. Big data now, it's like, oh, big data is scary. Like we have to like stop big data from, from taking all of information. Mm -hmm. And it's this very like big shift in mm -hmm. another direction for like big data at first was like, wow, look at these supercomputers. Look at the way they can analyze and crunch all this stuff to like, literally now it's machine learning. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, it's actually mm -hmm. like, it's not just we're pumping algorithms into this thing. It's like, we put one algorithm in place and it constantly feeds itself new mm -hmm. data to make itself better. Mm -hmm. um, it went from very cool to now with Skynet and we need to destroy it before it gets too big. <laughs> um, and I think uh, that one sad thing that's happening is, and I, I'd like to get your opinion on this, is I feel like consumer behavior is starting to get roped into big data and it's starting to get like a bit of a negative connotation of like, like how dare these businesses want to predict what I'm doing and like, mm. how are they like, oh, they're collecting all my data mm -hmm. so that they can predict how I'm going to be. And mm -hmm. now I get these like very targeted ads sure. that's like, yep, that's exactly what I want. How did you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, my phone's listening to me. I talked about waffles and now I'm getting mm -hmm. waffle ads from, mm -hmm. from, you know, it's like all these sort of things, I think cut back to um, consumer behavior and mm -hmm. how companies are trying to predict that stuff. But mm -hmm. I, I wanted to get your opinion on like, do you think that consumer behavior is getting a bad rap right now? And do you mm -hmm. think that it's like, it's justified do you think that it should be added in the bucket that is big data oh yeah that's a tough question uh rich any thoughts uh <laughs> no um, um here's what i'll say um <laughs> oh he'll have his comments i'm sure yeah so uh what i'll say is to that is it's it's a tough question and it's a question that i probably don't even have a perfect answer to but on the top of my head the thought that comes to mind right is like i think Consumers, they you kind of they kind of want their cake and they want to eat it too. That, yeah. that kind of expression of like right, so, predict thinking about like targeted ads, right, or, or things like that. So if you were to get, if you let's say you were going on a, on JC Penney's website and then an hour later you get a coupon for thirty percent off your sales, right, for your your purchase, right. Consumers would be like, that's awesome. I was just on JCPenney. Yep. But at the same time, how dare you look at my data, right? Well, what yeah. do you want them to do, right? And like, it's like, so you don't want them to look at your data, but you don't, you also still want this coupon, right? So you can't have it both mm -hmm. ways, so to speak, right? So I think consumers, they, they, they don't realize, I mean, yes, it can be dangerous. Of course it can be dangerous, but they don't see the benefits in their lives. And a lot of the benefits they're already experiencing already, right? When yep. you look at targeted ads, when you look at, so consumers will, will often say, you know, the reason why I hate watching advertisements is because it's not related to anything that I want, right? When I watch these commercials, when I watch, you know, see these billboards, I don't want any of these products. It's just junk that I'm, that I'm watching on TV. Well, what do you want? You want more customized ads. You want products that you actually want to see. Yep. How do they do that? Big data, right? Machine learning, all these things, right? And so if you want that customized experience, and so one of the trends that we see among millennials, one of the greatest trends is a desire for customization. They want experiences that are tailored to them. So hotels that, just as one example, hotels that can, that when you walk in and, and they, in your room, they have like a little name card with your name on it. Mm -hmm. People like that kind of experience. They like that customization, yeah. even if it's such a small thing, right? Having a, a wine bottle that's directly based on your preferences that you listed in the hotel survey or whatever, right? Waiting for you. They like that. So millennials, and I have a feeling that this is just going to be a, kind of a trend uh, going further, right? Millennials and just consumers in general want customization. Well, that customization, it comes at a cost, right? You can't customize things if you don't have the data to know what your consumers actually want, right? And so yep. and so I think for consumers, they they want one thing. In order to get that thing, they, we need big data. But they say, but I don't want the means by which you get that, right? Well, we, we're not advanced enough where we can just read your mind. We don't have telepathy quite yet, right? <laughs> so we can't just do that. And so we need big data. We need these things. Now, 
every, and so when I think of big data, it's a tool just like anything else. Every tool, everything that we know in advertising and marketing is a tool, right? It can be used for good or bad purposes. That's the bottom line, right? And so we can't see big data as something like, oh my goodness, this is something that's terrible that always produces these negative outcomes. It's just a tool at the end of the day, right? How the companies use it, how the marketers use it, that's up to them, but it's a mm -hmm. tool for, for use for good or bad intentions just like commercials, just like billboards, just like all these kinds of things, right? It's just a tool. And so it, every company has to decide how to use that tool. And so I, I think that would be my initial thoughts on, on big data, right? It's important because it helps push the marketing experience further. It helps create a more streamlined, better marketing experience for yeah. us, right? When we could say, I just looked at this website, now I have a coupon in my inbox. That's a great thing, right? To, mm -hmm. to, to, to be able to yeah. say that, to say that this was targeted exactly to me. That means the marketer was doing their job well. That means they did their job. They led you down the funnel like they're supposed to, right? And mm -hmm. that's going back to fundamental concepts of marketing. They're leading them down that consumer purchase kind of funnel like you're supposed to, right? So they're just doing their job. So you can't get mad at them for doing what they're supposed to doing and using their tools to help kind of lead you as a consumer down this funnel. Yeah, uh, two things on that. It's um, one, it's we as consumers can use that kind of shift that to our advantage. I mean, mm -hmm. I do all the time. I go on a website and I put something in my cart that I want and then I wait yeah, for 10% sure. off yeah. and then I wait for 15% yeah. off and yeah. then I wait for 20% off and then I go, yeah, okay, that's buy. about right. <laughs> that's about right. And then I buy it. Mm -hmm. um, I know I want it. I don't need it right now. So sure. I'll wait for, for that retargeting ad to come come and, you know, mm -hmm. come knocking on my email inbox mm -hmm. and and utilize it that way. Um, I completely space on what my second thing was talking about the the inbox retargeting um but i i think you don't do that <laughs> yeah absolutely man. Got, yeah you could have got that yeah, you could have got this for a lot yeah, yeah. you could have no, got for two hundred dollars if you wanted yeah, yeah. Yeah. if you just waited like eight years yeah. waited for like three years you could have got for two hundred dollars yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh no but it, it, it's like a cat and mouse game right and i yeah. think that's really true i think consumers think oh these machines are learning so much about us but hey consumers are smart too they're they're constantly learning about what's going on. They're constantly using it to their advantage, right? So yeah. they say, I'm gonna leave it in my cart because I know these companies will come will come knocking on my door, so to speak, and they're gonna give me a coupon and another coupon, right? So consumers, they're not dumb either. They're, they they kind of underestimate how much they know and how smart they really are. They actually know how to game the system in a lot of ways and know mm -hmm. how to use it to their advantage. And so it's this kind of back and forth kind of tug of war. Consumers, they, they tend to think that, oh, we're just kind of these helpless, defenseless kind of, you know, individuals who are being victimized, no, they know how to use these processes. They know how to be good consumers. They know how to react and respond in ways that will kind of, uh, you know, kind of benefit their buying experience for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think my only, my only take on it is, um, companies should be more open to what data they're collecting. Sure. I think that's the only part for me. It's like, sure. I, I, I don't mind them collecting data and, and people will always give up, um, their own personal rights, unfortunately, for convenience. That is just kind of how behavior in the United States works because you, you want to get your Amazon package tomorrow. You're going to want to, mm, oh, yeah. you want to get your advertisements customized yeah. to you and you're going to always give it up for that convenience side. Mm -hmm. That being said, though, is I think the, the issue really comes from how companies are not very transparent on what data they're mm, collecting very true, or yeah. giving the consumer a very non-legal terminology of like yeah. accepting the rights to yeah. you collecting the data. So I think if the data collection, the user had more say in it and sure. could say that you can collect this, this, and this, I'm very interested in your brand. I would love to get advertisements from you. Sure. Um, that would be a better way about it. And I think that would solve this kind of yeah. disconnect between the consumers being so scared about data yeah. privacy and then the convenience they really get out of it. Yeah, I think on one end, you're right, companies need to do a better job of being transparent. This is what we're collecting, right? We're gonna send you emails every week, et cetera, et cetera. But consumers also need to be smarter, right? Yeah. They need to actually read the fine print, right? Because a lot of times it's yeah. there for you, but you just say, okay, I agree, whatever, I don't really care, right? But if you had read and checked all the boxes, you would have known, okay, they're gonna send me emails every week. They're going to collect data on my buying habits, right? They told me what, what they're doing, but 
I just didn't really care. I just wanted to get through this purchase process and just kind of move on with my day. Well, they, you can't fault the company if they gave you that information. You just didn't read it, right? Just yep. like you can't fault the professor if he gave you a, a midterm and you didn't read the textbook, right? It, it's, 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 it's analogous to that. So on both ends of the spectrum, there needs to be better transparency, but also better kind of uh, kind of more vigilance in actually looking at what are these companies doing and, 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 and am I okay with that for sure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of back and forth for me all the time. Like you have this, the convenience is always what gets me. Like more than anything, because like I make, I make effort to try and shop small. If, I mean, if sure. that, that's the term you want to use there. But like um, my books, I try to buy them from Cellar Door here in Riverside. Um, it's like it's like one of the only, it's the closest bookstore that has like legitimately like books that you can buy. But then it's like, okay, I have the Kindle app on my phone, mm. and I really want to read this book right now because I just read a, a little segment from it that mm. I really liked. And then you go on Cellar Books and you go. Okay, twenty bucks there, and then you go on like Kindle, and it's like it's ten bucks. I can read it it right (laughs) now, and then you go, well, I'm already not that good of a person. I'm just gonna go ahead and (laughs) I'm just gonna go ahead and upload this onto my Kindle. Mm -hmm. And it's it's little things like this that like the convenience, and I I I will I try as much as I possibly can to buy books from from Cellar Door because I Mm -hmm. I support them and it's family owned. And if you are in Riverside or in the Inland Empire and you want to support a local bookstore, go to them. They're Mm -hmm. fantastic. They have a lot of really great books. Um, But then I also use my Kindle app because I can anytime I try to, I'm making a conscious effort now to not you like whenever I get the itch to like check Twitter or check Mm -hmm. Instagram or whatever it is, I just open my Kindle app like immediately. I go, it's on my homepage. I'm like Mm -hmm. Kindle app open. So then I have to read a few pages and then I go, you know what? I don't want to read. (laughs) And then I put it down. And then I continue to do what I'm doing. So I am trying to like rewire those little things, but the convenience like Val brought up is like something that is just not okay. Sure. Just how comfortable it is. Like we, um, <laughs> uh, Olive, my, my dog, she just got spayed. So we needed mm-hmm. to get her, she had a cone mm-hmm. and she hated it, hated the cone. So I was like, okay, I'm going to look some research up and, and, um, and see what we can find her. So we bought her like a little donut mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like seven in the morning and she was like crying and I was like, oh, she just hates the cone so much. So I'm, I'm up at seven in the morning and I, I go on Amazon and sure enough, there's a little donut. So I purchase it and it gets to my house 3 p.m. that day. So mm-hmm. I order it at 7 a.m. and it gets to my house at 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. Like that. That's you, crazy. You wow. can't beat that. Like, yeah. It's like yeah, now sure. my dog, my dog, I don't want her to be whimpering and mm-hmm. be like all sad because she's bumping into walls and can't even leave the house to go to the bathroom because she has this cone mm-hmm. on. And now she's like something. I mean, obviously she has a donut on, but she's somewhat back to normal at least, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So convenience uh, is absolutely massive mm-hmm. um, when it comes down to these uh, these sort of services. And, sure. And I mean, yeah, that's what it is at the end of the day. Um, I remember what I wanted to touch on when you brought up uh, hospitality and how they're mm-hmm. kind of customizing the things here. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in Nashville, I stayed at an Ace. And when mm. I walked into the Ace, um, excuse me, not Nashville, Charlotte. When I was in Charlotte, I walked into the Ace. Doesn't matter, but I, I want to be honest <laughs> to myself. Um, I walked into the Ace Hotel, my room, and uh, on the big flat screen, it said, um, welcome, Luis. And it mm-hmm. was like, and then it had like the the weather and all these kind of things here i saw that and i was like oh that's pretty rad i was yeah. like that's that's cool the fact yeah. that it's like a, when i walk into the room the tv is on it has my name on it it has the stuff that i want to see like what's the weather going to be like for the week mm-hmm. um and then like advertisements for like local stuff in the area like right next to where the mm-hmm. ace was so i was oh. like that's fantastic that sure. is good um that's fine. That, that's what i want i want to sure. know the weather of tomorrow i want to know that yep that's my name there it is mm-hmm. and also where can i go uh buy a burger Sure. Uh, so in Charlotte, is there any Shake Shacks in my vicinity? Um, 
Yeah, it's 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 this kind of weird balance, and I think this kind of idea t- takes me in, into the next thing, which is like advertisements, mm-hmm. which is like you have this like, like to me at least, I see that on s- spread out like digitally and and being able to cycle through like all these things, and I go, oh, that's fantastic. Like mm-hmm. theoretically speaking, that's existed in hotels for a long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you have, but it existed in a brochure mm-hmm. where you would have like, oh, here's all the channels, and like he like maybe like a little place card, a uh, place card or something like that, that says your name on it. But, like here's all the channels, here's the brochure, here's, mm-hmm. but they're making you go towards that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons. And this kind of touches on, on the subject of advertisement print versus digital to me mm-hmm. at least, um, just because. Um, digital has allowed there to be no barriers, mm-hmm. zero. Where mm-hmm. it's like I see that screen the minute I walk into a room, and it wasn't like I had to turn the TV on; mm-hmm. it was already on. Everything was done for me. Mm-hmm. I was already in the location that they knew I was going to be at. Mm-hmm. So you have you have this thing where it's like this exists now. Whereas previously the barrier was me, where I had to go look at the brochure, look at what channels were on. If I wanted to go look at the Weather Channel, look at what local restaurants were were there. If I wanted to go look through them and actually. Uh, flip through the pages um whereas now it's that's it's done it's done for me and i think that is a good a good kind of thing that has come through digital advertisements versus print advertisements Mm -hmm. where it's like you'll see a billboard and you'll say that is that's a service that i might need right now Mm -hmm. like that oh that reminded me i I actually do Mm -hmm. need that service but then you don't remember that service. Mm-hmm. You then you go on Google and you look up the service, and mm-hmm. then you get boop 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 a yeah, bunch of different sure. results. Um, and then you pick obviously something. I mean, most people pick the first one, even though it's an ad. But you know, more power to you. Um, you pick the first thing, and that's what you go with. Maybe the first thing was not the thing that mm-hmm. initiated you searching for that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I, th- I think one thing that I think personally, and I, I think I get some some pushback from it is i think print media is stupid to rely on like Mm -hmm. it's it's one of the dumbest things you you can you can put budget towards because um you with print media you could be the catalyst Mm -hmm. that initiates someone wanting that service Mm -hmm. but more often than not they're still going to search for it so Mm -hmm. you were just the catalyst for their search Mm -hmm. and then if if some other company some other competitor has better seo Mm -hmm. or just has a really good ad targeted Mm -hmm. towards that specific demographic you gave them a customer (laughs) you're you're giving your your people a customer so it's like let someone else be the catalyst and you just focus on really good sem focus on really good seo and and do that because that's where it's going no no everyone when i walk down the street i'm like this i'm i'm looking at my phone um doing stuff there Mm -hmm. um i'm not I'm not looking up at the billboards mm. being like, ooh, a new movie's coming out on Netflix. Let me let me add that to my list. Like, no, it's <laughs> I'm not doing it at all. Yeah. I, I think at the end of the day, going back to one of the core concepts of kind of consumer behavior advertising, right? Every marketer is trying to walk consumers through that journey, right? From all the way from not being aware to taking action. That, there's a journey. No matter throughout time, throughout history, right? Every time someone has sold something, they're trying to walk consumers through that funnel, through that journey from awareness all the way down to action. Yep. And so the journey's the same. It's just the tools that we use to get people from one step to another is different. That's what that's what really changes, right? And so and so I think from that perspective, print ads were effective, like like Luis was saying, like maybe 20, 30 years ago, but the tools that we have now in order to carry consumers on that journey is different. And so the concepts are the same, but we need to update our tools, we need to update kind of the things that we're doing in order to better kind of uh kind of yeah, help consumers along that pathway for sure. So Yeah, no, absolutely. Um 
And I, I feel like the only real massive benefit for print advertisement mm -hmm. is that um, it's, it's an easy reminder if you're already at a place of action. Sure, so, exactly. So um, like last, last week we were talking about for community colleges for if they want to remind people about classes, mm. uh, for example, like to register for classes. Sure. It's, it's way easier to get that with like just a like nice billboard or like a poster versus exactly. trying to run an ad on that because you're already at the university, you're already in the mindset mm -hmm. that you're gonna wanna register for class and so just a quick reminder. Mm -hmm. But I, I just don't think the, the issue with print advertising, you can't create journeys. Yeah. And I think that's really where the massive disconnect comes from. Yeah, well, and, and that's a great point you bring up because when you think about the consumer journey, right, from awareness all the way to action, it's a multi-step journey. And so yeah. there will be different tools you use at every part of the journey, right? So it's hard for us to say, get rid of all print ads because they're not effective anymore, right? But they, they do have some purpose and maybe not as much as they did 40 years ago, but they do have some purpose, right? Like you said, at the point of contact, when you're about to sign up for that class, it's helpful to have that print ad, right? Mm -hmm. But earlier in the journey, maybe it's more helpful to have, you know, when you're searching online, right, to have that kind of targeted ad come at you and, 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 get, and, and, and kind of roll you, get you started down the funnel, right? So I think the, the problem with a lot of marketers is that they kind of have a narrow focus, right? They're always just focused on how can I bring awareness, right? How can I get people to know what I'm doing, right? And, and they say, okay, as a result of that, print ads, they're not very effective anymore. And that's true to an extent. They're not effective at creating awareness, but they are effective at helping you kind of take that final step towards action, right? Mm -hmm. So looking at the funnel holistically would be more helpful as you think about how can we create tools at every part of this funnel, right? From awareness to interest to desire to action, how do we create tools, that use tools at every part of this funnel to get them to where they need to go? And from that perspective, print ads, commercials, billboards, um, you know, digital ads, social media, they all have a place to play just at different parts of that funnel, basically. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that's a, uh... Anybody who wants to get into marketing, if you if you don't know about the the five seventeen P's of whatever we had talked about earlier, yes. the one thing you have to do really focus in on is is that customer journey, yes, and then exactly. understanding how you can get from awareness to purchase all the way to advocacy. I think yes. that's the biggest yeah. part for marketers yeah. is that you don't want to just get people to purchase; you want them to retain and become advocates yeah, of your brand. Because sure. now you have walking billboards, you have mm -hmm. walking advertisers for your sure, business, yeah. versus being so reliant and stuck sure. on you doing and pushing it into the market. Sure. That's very true. Um, so the next question, as, as, as Luis now comes right back in, um, is where, where do you think that the future of advertising is really going? So um, as, as we're continuing in this time frame and um, advertising obviously has distinctly changed now, mm -hmm. with, now with digital and it's, it's added so we can get ads right in front of people and customize them. Sure. Where do you think the future of advertisement is really going? Oh man, that's a really good question. And we'll see it, the next 20 years will be very interesting for advertising. As Luis was mentioning, as we start to phase out more of these print ads, right? As people are not reading, they're not reading Time Magazine in print anymore. They're yeah. not reading LA Times in print anymore, right? So we're phasing a lot of these things out, a lot of these traditional forms of advertising that you would see out. One thing I've been hearing a lot is, and so I think advertising is, its goal is constantly, how can we get closer and closer to, to the consumer, right? So at first it was, they're driving to work, there's a billboard. That's how we can get pretty close to them. Oh, and then, as time goes on, they have radios now, so we can get even closer to them now. And then as time goes on, they have laptops, so we can get even closer to them. And so the question is, how can we always get closer and closer and closer to our consumer? That's really the question that advertising is always trying to answer, right? And so from that perspective, what I've been hearing, and so one thing that's been kind of cool is using maybe virtual reality, right? And mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's a big thing that advertisers are now thinking about. Yeah. I guarantee you, there are at least a few people in every major company who are thinking about how can we use this in our, advertise, in our advertisements, right? Because yeah. it's becoming a trend. And, and things like, so at a lot of clothing stores, what, what they will, not a lot, but actually a, a couple of different clothing stores I've heard about, they'll actually have these special mirrors where you can actually go in front of the mirror and they'll put like virtual outfits on you. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So you don't have to go and actually like try it on yourself and kind of take the hassle of 
putting taking clothes on and off and just and just kind of going through that kind of uh, burden for a lot of consumers yeah they'll kind of match the outfit onto your body so you know exactly what it looks like so you, there's less hassle for you right so mm -hmm. i know advertisers are now thinking about how can we put that in a consumer's household right how can we how can we ha install these kind of special mirrors so to speak so that they have so that we can say okay our new outfit just came out do you want to try it out in front of your mirror at your house right now right before you actually go <coughs> purchase it so that's where it's going right how can we get closer to the consumer through virtual reality through all these kinds of things right they're gonna find ways to get closer to you. They're gonna. That's kind of I think the new frontier of how they're gonna find uh, uh, kind of inroads into 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 your into your 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 wallets and your purses, so to speak, right? Is, is through that and is kind of using that. And so, digital online media, obviously, uh, social media will be uh, pr prevalent. It will be important, right? Um, but these kind of virtual experiences, almost like the next frontier, that's important, right? And then just, of course, the greater customizability. The more advertising will become even more and more specialized as we have greater technology. So we always think about how can we kind of segment our consumers? How can we create target markets? Demographically, uh, like, like geographically, like Luis was saying, right? And so that never changes, but how we do it will change. And it'll get yep. even more fine-tuned, even more fine-grained. Now we don't, we're not just saying, okay, geographically, we know what country you live in. We're saying, we know what area you live in. We know what kind of zip code, yeah, yeah. Zip code you live in, right? Mm -hmm. We know what kind of what your neighbors are like right we know what kind of just your street your street is like kind of yep. demographically and culturally etc right so as they get more and more of that kind of data that's going to allow them to be, customize things more and more to consumers right the the, the the when i open the mail and i look at all the advertisements most of the time it's for you know maybe the pizza place across my house or the you know whatever things like that is it become even more specified based on on my characteristics my demographics my location etc you're going to see that become even more and more targeted for sure yeah and i th i think Thinking about targeted ads segues us really neatly um, into into something else, which is something that I, I think about a lot, and I think it's being thought about a lot, especially with uh, big tech firms having to address Congress and the Senate and, and certain certain committees there. Um, but do you think that there's adequate regulation within digital advertisement? Um, specifically, like one thing I want to take as an example is. Um, you think of all of the rules that are in place for advertising towards children on television mm, yeah. that it does not exist digitally. Like those those regulations, those laws that exist that prohibit um, Joe Camel from advertising to your kid sure. in a cartoonish way sure. um, doesn't exist, which is why I think Jewel got so much flack mm, for yeah. it. Because Jewel was, whether they want to admit it or not, they had people who looked very, very young, like teenagers. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Seriously, like like the youngest looking eighteen year olds they could find for advertisements, <laughs> um, and that's what they were pushing. They were pushing this agenda of like, oh, cool young kids smoke jewel. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm cu I'm curious. Like, do you think there's enough adequate regulation? I, I think it's a two parter. Do you think there's adequate regulation, just overall as a whole? Mm -hmm. um, and then do you think that there's something to be done specific in specific cases, sort of like. Uh, advertising towards kids or mm -hmm. even advertising towards a specific group of people mm, that's a given where we're going that's a really good question because when i was growing up and when when when, when a lot of us were growing up right we didn't have tablets that we could look at and kind of consume material yeah. mm -hmm. from right right so we didn't have those targeted ads that were like literally like in our faces right we didn't have our own laptops we didn't have our own cell phones right so we didn't we, we weren't as exposed to advertising as the kids of today will be and, and our kids will be right they're yeah. going to get advertisements basically from the day they're born, basically, our, our kids, basically, right? So, and so I think that when you think about kind of the regulations, it's kind of like the wild west, wild west right now. As, we're, as we are, you know, finding all these new forms to advertise to people, kind of the regulations are kind of flowing from that. And we're saying, oh, okay, now we, it's always a reactive kind of thing, right? Where yeah. we're saying, okay, 
But over the past five years, these digital ads have been having negative effects on kids. Now let's put a regulation out there, right? Yeah. So it's always this reactive kind of thing. And so we probably don't have enough regulations as it is, right? We probably, honestly speaking, we probably don't, right? I, I've seen some ads where I'm like, that definitely should not be on TV right now, right? Or, yeah. or I've seen some targeted ads where I'm like, I don't, I, I didn't, I don't know why you would show that if my, if I had a kid or, and if they were to walk up to my laptop, I probably wouldn't want them to see something, this graphic or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so, and so, it, it it brings up a lot of interesting questions, right? We, I think, a lot of uh, the fights that we've been seeing kind of in Congress at, at different levels is. How can we put more regulations in place? But the, on the flip side, then advertisers say, "Well, you're handcuffing us, right? Then you're kind of forcing us to—you're kind of forcing us to kind of fight, so to speak, with one hand behind our back, right? Yeah, because yeah. if we can't target exactly like we want to, if we can't, you know, if we can't uh, kind of tailor our ads specifically like we want to, right? Well, then we're we're we, we're, we're gonna we're gonna cease to exist in 10, yeah. 20 years if we can't, you know, use these technologies to the best of our advantage. And so I think going back to virtual reality, that's gonna be an interesting kind of avenue for, for regulations, right? As kids are now putting on these virtual headsets earlier and earlier, how do you regulate that, right? How do you determine, yeah. right? What do they see and what they don't see? Right? Even on, on, online, right? You have all these parental blockers, which are great, but even then, right, there's still so much that kids can get into, so much that they can see that you say, I don't know if I, you should be seeing this at 10 years old or whatever, right? And so, and so it's hard. I don't know what the right answer is. Should there be more regulations? I think there should be. Um, and I think especially in, in over the next uh, 20 years, especially for kids, because they're going to start to see it more and more. They're going to start to see so many things more and more that uh, they're going to be they're, they're, th th that we didn't see when we were growing up when we were yeah. five, ten years old, right? So I think especially for the for kids, even for 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 for, for teenagers, right? Um, and, and you think about when you think about kind of consumer behavior, the, the people's kind of cognitive cognitive kind of growth, right? It's really I'm not a cognitive uh, kind of a, a developmental psychologist in any way, but when you look at the kind of trajectory. Really, it's in your 20s where you start to kind of form truly who you are. You start yep. to stabilize, things like that, right? So before that, high school, middle school, you're still trying to figure out who you are. Super susceptible. Yeah, and advertisers will tell you who you are. They will tell you that yeah. very that very persuasively if you do not know, right? So even for not just kids, but for teenagers, right? It's important for us to think like Jewel. Jewel is telling kids, this is who you should be, right? This is who, this is, this is cool. Yeah, this is cool, right? Yeah, and they, so were very, they were very cool. And, and they were very good at it. That's the thing. They were very, they were so persuasive that the government forced them to stop basically, yeah, right? And, yeah. and, 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 and so, um, and so, yeah, so I think you think about kids, about teenagers, we have to protect them. We have, and we have to think, think carefully, right? Um, and, and, and we think kind of how to help them, how to kind of, it sounds, it sounds heavy handed to protect them from this, right? But at the same time, how to kind of shield them in some way from these things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that heavy handed or not, I think it's something that needs to kind of be addressed, sure. which is like, um, we'll talk about it a, a bit, but having, having tech and having advertising advertisement firms and all these kind of things. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm on both sides. Like mm -hmm. I understand that they should be allowed to use anything to get you those ads because mm -hmm. at the end of the day you might get a bad ad but mm -hmm. it's going to get better and better and better yep. and better sure. and better sure and it's going to get to the point where you're like yeah that's exactly what i need right now like before mm -hmm. you even thought about it really you know mm -hmm. um but at the same time it's you we have we cannot allow like as we continue to move further and further in society and technology mm -hmm. keeps growing and growing um it goes back to my first point where it's like looking at this in an antiquated way sure. looking at technology through the lens of the printing press mm -hmm. looking at technology in that way mm -hmm. is gonna make it go so slowly mm -hmm. that you that now as a i can speak only for the united states because i'm here but we are 
in a position where regulators, people in Congress and Senate and all this stuff, they are now defaulting to the tech companies that are the ones pumping out the advertisements <laughs> mm-hmm. that are effe- exactly that are pumping out the ads mm-hmm. to then say, oh, no, no, no. You know who knows how to solve this problem? Mm-hmm. We do. The people who started the problem mm-hmm. are now the people who are tasked by the United States government to then solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And it's, if you think for a second that the person who is at mo- has the most to gain, financially speaking, from the problem that they created is that if you think that they are then going to say, you know what, you're right. Let me not target shit. Let me not target kids. Mm-hmm. Let me not target this specific group of people. Mm-hmm. Let me lower my bottom line. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think that they're going to self-regulate, you, it, I, th- I think it's a bit naive. You know what's interesting? So on the topic of Juul, so Juul, when they were caught and, and, the, and the government said, hey, you got to stop using you know these young looking models, basically. What Juul said is, hey, we're sorry. We didn't know that, right? They say, yeah, we're sorry. We didn't know that, right? But they also said, we'll try to fix it. We'll try to go to high schools and, and put anti-smoking campaigns in place, right? Mm-hmm. And we'll sponsor them. And as a parent, right, if you're a parent or if you're just any kind of reasonable person, you'd be saying, why would we let Jewel do that for, right? Why would we allow the fox kind of into the hen house, so to speak, right? Yeah. And, and so and so you're right. We're kind of leaving it to companies to regulate themselves and to kind of and do these things. But I think also another point that we need to keep in mind is that advertising influences culture, but culture also influences advertising. It's a two-way street, yeah. right? So yeah. we often think, man, advertising is teaching our kids that violence is okay, that sex sells, that all these things, right? But at the same time, if consumers want it, advertisers are going to provide it, right? So th- it's a two-way street. So advertisers need to look at themselves, but consumers need to also look at themselves and think, what are what do we really want? What are we telling advertisers that we, that we that we that we desire that we desire and that we want to buy, right? And so there, because a lot of advertising is just reacting to what you want. Targeted ads is literally reacting to what you want, right? Yeah. And so if you're per- putting these things in your cart, they're going to give you a targeted ad, and yeah. so it's not their fault for doing that, right? And so and so the two-way street that we kind of we kind of think once again the consumers are at the mercies of these advertisers. In reality, consumers have some culpability when you think about it because they are also telling advertisers, show us this, give us this, right? And advertisers are saying, sure, yeah, if that's what you want, we'll give it to you. And so it's, it goes both ways for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I, th- I think that's the, the tough part. Like where at least I stand, I, I don't know about uh, YouTube, Ellen Nikhil, but it's like, I'm on both ends of the tightrope. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can fall kind of both ways. Sure. Where it's like, I'm, I understand, again, I understand why allow all this data to flow through and why allow open kind of open season for advertisements mm-hmm. because that is how kind of the machines learn and how you mm-hmm. get better and better algorithms and how you get eventually to a point where everything just is like free-flowing like mm-hmm. it, it's it's all one one big kind of consciousness if you mm-hmm. want to look at it that way uh but at the same time i'm and i think I think we think like this because we're on that fringe of mm-hmm. we remember what it was like before sure. technology and we remember what it's like having technology. I don't have I don't have a computer in my house until I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. So it's like I remember getting it and being like, wow, the Internet, like this is pretty cool. <laughs> and then going on MySpace and then, you know, learning how to code in uh, what was it? CSS, was it or Java for MySpace? I think it was CSS. There was just like, yeah, yeah. it was like basic code, mm-hmm. learning how to make my homepage look really cool. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm on I'm on both ends. Where like mm-hmm. I understand maybe let's regulate, but at the same time, does then regulating the thing that I am a part of put one hand behind my back? Mm-hmm. Does that affect me, and does that affect the business in a way that's going to make it so that I we as a business can't go to a, another company and say, hey, look, um, we can two x, three x, four x, five x your business. Sure. And then if we have those handcuffs, do we then have to say, actually, it's going to take twice as long 
to hit that roadmap. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to take X amount of time as opposed to more this. More money. More money. Sure. Exactly. Um, yeah, these are things that we think about because like, at the end of the day, we're in this world. Like these are, we, we have nothing but things to gain from there not being any regulations in the industry as a business, individually speaking. I think that's where you get to this like kind of cross think of like, you, where do I want to go? What, mm. what to me is more important? This kind of mentality of humans and, and preser- preserving that sort of mental state mm-hmm. or making it so I get an ad for those new Fenty boxers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's like, where, where do I want to go? You know, mm-hmm. remind me never to check your search history. Uh, <laughs> for sure. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, and I think the bottom line summary from all this, we don't know. Like that's yeah. the bottom line. We just don't know, right? Mm-hmm. We, you can see both sides of the spectrum. You see both points, right? And both, and every every side has a valid point, and so it's hard to balance them against each other. It's it's, it's a gray area. It's very yeah. gray for a reason, and that's the reason why we don't. No one really has an answer to it yet. So yeah. And I, I my my final question kind of encompasses just the ethics of advertising mm-hmm. in general. Uh, I don't know if you saw the documentary Social Dilemma on on Netflix. I have not seen it yet. No. Definitely watch it. It, it will what we just talked about scared the crap of you based mm-hmm. off those things but what it really showed was even the people that develop these platforms they're really scared of the, the, the stuff that they develop sure because they didn't anticipate it to be used in mm-hmm. these ways and what it talks about the one very staggering fact that like especially right now with all these political like movements and how much people are really pushing against each other and everything that's going on um people are six times more likely to share false information than information that's factual because of cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. And that fact scared the crap out of me because that makes mm-hmm. sense. That's that literally what happened in 2016 and it's mm-hmm. happening again is that there's people that take advantage of that and they purposely put false information out there mm-hmm. because you are more likely to share what you believe in personally mm-hmm. instead of having conversations with others that you don't agree with. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, the, what scared me the most in that documentary I rewatched it again yesterday just to just to really scare myself again before bed. Um, it was it surprised me the first time too? But the, this, especially now with everything the way it's going, um, everything's heading kind of politically. It, it struck a different kind of nerve for me when when I showed off the um, the graph of uh, political standings of Republicans and Democrats mm-hmm. and how it starts in like the 1990s and the graph the two the median um, beliefs for Democrats and Republicans were fairly close and as you go into 2020 it's like mm. the left and the right just both go so sure. far from weight so far away from each other that you you that that i think is a very powerful visual uh representation al- alone that shows just how kind of divided the country mm-hmm. is in that sense but i think if you really look into the data that's going that's feeding that graph that's when it gets even scarier because that's when you go into cognitive dissonance you go into this polarization of you on you can make social media anything you can make social media um validate any idea that you might have whether or not it is true or not Mm -hmm. um and it's just it's kind of a function of it and that's Mm -hmm. kind of the scary part is like if i wanted to believe that the earth was flat i'm i could join a few facebook groups Mm -hmm. and next thing you know all i'm getting in my feed is just that i'm getting ads for that i'm getting you know these are the things youtube and you just go through a a huge rabbit hole yeah yeah you go go through this big thing i mean it's it's one of the reasons yes it's (laughs) one of the reasons why everything is so very very polarizing but like terrifying at the same time where it's just like there's no the part that scared me the most, the part that scared me the most about that movie, um, ethical standard standings aside, whether or not uh, the way that 
companies advertise is ethical because I think there's yes and no. Mm-hmm. I think companies can advertise ethically, and then I think that some companies just go screw it. We're mm-hmm. just gonna target. We're gonna we're gonna collect as much data as we can and just push anything that we possibly can towards these people. Sure. Um, you know, a lot a lot you can read into it. I think I think like you say, it's a massive gray zone. Mm-hmm. But that that to me is the scariest part is the um, the polarization, the divisiveness that is. Mm the social media like and like this very much like lack of conversation being had where you only have like the left the like you have like antifa versus like the alt-right and like all these kind Mm -hmm. of things where it's just like like oh crap like hold on now what side am i on like am i on this side am i on that side what should i pick let me look Mm -hmm. at let me look at the list of things and you go to you go look at some stuff here and they say oh these people are because of these reasons and you go look over there and you go these people are because of these reasons Mm -hmm. and then you go okay i'm just gonna stand here in the middle Mm -hmm. until something very much affects me personally and that's when you make that decision and that's when like social media really gravitates and grabs you Mm -hmm. that's why you see these massive um these massive gains and like i mean you think in the worst way possible you think isis you think Mm -hmm. like that existed because of social media Mm -hmm. because of this polarization and this hatred towards a specific group of people then you go yeah you know what i don't like that people too so i'm gonna go with those people because they don't like people that i don't like and mm-hmm. that's something we have in common and you get radicalized in, in, in out crowds i remember something from yeah, yeah. good yeah. Now, good yeah. good yeah um so yeah you had you join you join these crowds sure. because it's something that you agree with as opposed to uh uh yeah because something you agree with but then in a very much the opposite side mm-hmm. of it is like i think about um like some of the riots that have been happening recently mm-hmm. and I remember there was one in San Bernardino, very close to where my parents are and everything like that. And the riots happened. That's, you know, that's the thing that happened. But then the community through social media comes together to clean up the mm, area. Sure. Uh, and obviously there's a million other examples of positivities that, mm. have, that have come from this kind of polarization and this kind of groupthink. Um, but that, again, that is, look at the positives like really hold on to them and say this is fantastic this is great Mm -hmm. but then don't look at the negatives and say ah you know you can't have the good without the bad Mm -hmm. you can't have a sunny day without the rainy day like no like look at the bad and go that's something that we have to fix like that like um, yeah I I look at one thing that I heard I I forget who said it's um, it's this this idea of like shaping the way that you think and shaping how you act uh, based on your beliefs Mm -hmm. it's a lot of people, and I, I include myself in this um, sometimes, is you have this ideal that um, something is going to change um, if you just wait long enough. Sure. You know, if, if I just stand right here where I am and I keep believing what I believe, mm-hmm. eventually speaking, it will come and I'm going to find that perfect match of, sure. of someone that either believes in what I'm doing or the group that believes in what I'm doing. And, and you kind of do that there. Whereas one way you should look at it and something that, that really challenged me when I first heard this is you should look at these kind of belief systems. You should look at uh, whether it's regulating, whether it's advertising, um, whether it's the future of education, whether it's all these kind of things. Instead of waiting for that perfect thing to exist, um, look at it instead of like public transportation. Mm-hmm. If you're stuck far away from home, are you going to stand there at the bus stop and mm-hmm. say to yourself, I'm going to stand right here and hopefully my house gets closer to me? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to get on the bus, even if it doesn't take you straight to your house, are you going to get on that bus and get closer to your house, mm-hmm. you're gonna choose option two. You're not gonna stand there and do nothing. You're gonna mm-hmm. go and you're gonna do the things that are gonna impact you in a way that's gonna get you closer to mm-hmm. your end goal, to the vision that you then see, whether that's me turning off all my notifications from all my social media on mm-hmm. my phone, um, whether that's me thinking of whether or not I wanna go into 
you know, black and white mode on my phone again because I did that for like a month and it was awful, but it makes you not want to go on your phone anymore. Mm -hmm. Like if your phone's in black and white, it makes you go, this is boring. The pretty colors mm -hmm. aren't there anymore. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, yeah, it, it, it's this kind of mindset of like ethical versus non-ethical. Mm -hmm. At this point, there's so much gray yeah. and ethical and non-ethical are such tiny slivers on the ends of the spectrums at this point mm -hmm. when it comes to digital um, that... I think you're better off just figuring out what makes the most sense for this mm -hmm. one particular thing. Um, and I think that goes with like most of the conversation that we've been having. Most mm -hmm. of the, the topics that we've hit on here, it's this mentality of like, okay, you're right here right now. How can you get a little bit closer? Whether that's going to a boot camp, going to grad school, mm -hmm. whether it's mm -hmm. uh, choosing to take a gap year, for example, off, uh, for education, because you feel like right now COVID-19 is very scary and you don't want to be a part of that right now. Mm -hmm. um, you have all of these kind of things always cycling through your brain and and I, th I think it's important to to acknowledge the polarization that's happening and see just how you can fix it how you sure. can kind of scooch a little bit um yeah but that that's just like what comes to my brain after watching that <laughs> stupid documentary again because it's the most terrible have you seen it yet have you seen no. social dilemma <laughs> don't watch it dude it's, you're gonna you're gonna it, it's yeah it, it's one of those things that just gets you like angry but also gets you like but it sounds like it's important for everyone to watch. It's very important. Yeah. Yeah, the dramatizations I could do without. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, I could do without them, but I get what they're going for. Like, I would I would have much rather than just have, like, experts talk on the stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's just me. I'm, I'm, I'm a weirdo. Um, yeah, but, I mean, I think, I think, did we hit on all the topics here? I feel like I went on a, on a rant about polarization <laughs> for a little bit. Uh, I, I guess, I guess There's a lot the, of stuff la happening. the last question for you before we, we go into the, the, the failure story section would just be, do, do you think that... Um, there is a solution that's obviously a really hard question mm -hmm. but like to this like polarization and this social dilemma that is happening because of social media because like we talked there's a lot of good there's, there's bad it's a gray zone sure but do you think there's anything that can be done to at least push us in the right direction like Luis is trying to get at sure oh man that's a good question <laughs> and that's I mean, I feel like we need to bring a moral philosopher into, the, into, <laughs> into this discussion to really, uh, really hit home. Um, uh, but what I'll say, it I think, and it kind of goes off the themes of of what we've been talking about, right? I, I think, and this is not going to be a perfect answer, but what I can think of at the moment is every kind of party has to do their part to some extent, right? Yep. Whether it's political party, but not just political party, but advertisers, consumers, right? We all have to do our part, right? And so... And so I think everyone has to do their part in terms of kind of and kind of understanding what what am I being shown, mm -hmm. what am I doing, how am I using these tools, how are these tools being used against me, right? Everyone has to do their part. So I think, I think uh, you know, we all kind of want to say, you know, man, regulate the advertisers, right? But it's not the advertisers' fault that you're, you're on your phone for five hours a day, right? That's 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 yeah. that's on you, right? Mm -hmm. That's on you. And you can say, well, well, maybe you should put a, a, a lock on my phone, and so I can't be on that. Well, then you're gonna say, well, you know, you're kind of you're kind of you're not giving me freedom of choice, basically, right? So, yep. so there's a lot of so there's a lot that can be said, basically. So advertisers they have a lot of culpability in this, right? Part of the reason why we're here is because advertisers have have taken advantage of their consumers without a doubt. Yep. But also consumers have to do a better job of of uh, of kind of keeping themselves in check. And I think more generally, right, when we think about the things we've been talking about, I think something I've been seeing more and more. Um, with everything going on over the past six months is that there's a sense that, and this is just a very general point, right? That everyone wants to be understood, but no one actually wants to understand. Yep. And it's a yeah. very accurate, it's very sad, but everyone says, 
I want you to hear what I have to say. I want you to hear my story. I want you to hear my point of view, right? And it's all well and good. There's nothing wrong with it. But you, but whenever someone else tries to talk, they say, well, I don't want to listen to that. It's, it's, not, it's not important, right? Mm. If everyone could just actually seek to understand instead mm. of being understood, the world would progress actually much further along than, yeah. than it is right now. And so having that sense of like, just at, at a, from a very basic level, I'm gonna seek to understand what's going on in politics or how this person is experiencing the world or whatever, right? And seeking just to understand that, even if you don't fully agree with it, even if you, it's not fully what you, what you believe in, right? Simply understanding it would go a long way towards helping us get to where we need to be uh, in terms of just advertising for sure, but also just in life in general, I'd yep. say for sure. So mm -hmm. without a doubt. Yeah, and I, I think that that was, it's literally the, the purpose of why we do this podcast sure. is, is for that so that you, you can hear different opinions about different things and understand and create your own mindset about it because a lot of times opinions get passed out through generations and yeah. it's through the environment you're in and you, you kind of get so consumed by that mm -hmm. that that's all you know and you live by but you're not willing to really understand what other people mm. are um, why they're like why their beliefs are what they are sure. and, and by just talking and having conversations that, that does... Uh, help that problem. And I think um, that perfectly transitions to the last thing that we always do for the show, mm -hmm. which is the other part that is uh, a lot of times in society is not discussed a lot is, is failure. Sure. We discuss success all the time and social media even more that glorifies that all, mm -hmm. all the way to the light of day. Um, but what we always want to end the show with is, is, a, is a failure story from the guest, um, whatever you want to share. And really what we're trying to get at here is to show that no matter where you get at life, Failure is really the driving factor that gets you there. Fair. So um, we'd love to hear a, a nice yeah. little failure story from uh, <laughs> Professor Jonathan. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that I could pull from, and and you're totally right. I think we don't talk about failure enough, right? Our our life, at least from social media, is just a a, bu a, a bunch of points of success for us, right? Mm -hmm. Got into grad school, got a job, did well at my job, whatever, blah blah blah, right? Uh, you know, and things like that. And so. Failure is so important to talk about. Um, and when I think about my own life, right, and really kind of my own failure in, in particular to kind of teaching in terms of what I do now, right, that really hits home in that, in that regard. Um, so when I was a grad student uh, back, back at UCLA, I actually taught a class for the first time, basically, right? I taught an undergrad class, Intro to Business, um, uh, for the, not at UCLA, but another institution, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, I, 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 and so I taught a class for the first time, and so and so I was kind of uh, brought in like two weeks before the class started, right? Because they needed another instructor, so it was a lot of work, and it was a lot of just like putting things together, right? Um, and and it, it was a great experience. I, I, I love the students. I, I had a great time with it, right? But I think the the first thing I underestimated was just how much time went into actually creating classes, right? So mm -hmm. for all these students listening in the audience. Your professors put a lot of work into the classes. Even if it doesn't seem like it's a great class, a lot of work and thought has to go into slides. What do the slides look like? What kind of information do they have? Is it entertaining, right? From the deliverables, what kinds of deliverables? How, how, many, how much points should they be worth? What should the midterm look like? What should the exam look like? Classroom management, right? How can I make sure I manage the class so that it has a good environment, right? And so mm -hmm. not every professor will think about all these questions, but they'll think about at least, at least some of these questions. And mm -hmm. it's a lot. And I didn't think about that. I was just like, how hard can it be to put some slides together and just walk in and talk about the slides, right? And so I think that was my first indication that, oh shoot, I, I might be in over my head a little bit more than I thought, right? And so. I, and so I, you know, it was a 16 week class, it was a semester class. So it was, and I had like 20 students. And so it was a great, great time. I got to know a lot of them and things like that. And I thought I was teaching the material well. I thought I was getting used to it after 
a couple months of, you know, doing it because the semester is like three months. So after a couple months, I was like, I'm doing pretty well at this, right? And students seem to like me, all these things. And I'm like, you know, I'm outgoing, I'm friendly, like this can't be too bad, right? And things like that. Um, and so and so I remember thinking, okay, I'm, I'm, I think I'm doing just fine, honestly. Like I had some bumps in the road at the beginning, had to get, learn to kind of earn my stripes, had to learn how to do this, but I think I'm okay now, right? And, 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 and that was kind of my thought process. And so obviously we get evals, students write us evals, just like they do at UCR, right? Uh, and I remember uh, I was like, okay, I think I should get pretty good evals, right? Like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna puff myself up too much, but I think I did a pretty good job, right? I know all my students' names, they all like me, etc. And then I remember getting these evals, and the students, and students were like, "Wow, we learned nothing in this class." Like, they, and, and they were like ripping me apart, right? And I was like, "Oh shoot, I, I feel like I failed you. Like, I feel like I like let you down, and I feel like I like, literally like destroyed your life or something like that, right?" And part of it is that students are vicious. Don't get me wrong; they can they, when things come out. Uh, trust me, the things come out. I know. I was a student, and I, I know how students are, right? And, and so, but I remember reading these evals, and I was, and I was sitting in my car, like reading them, and my friend was was with me in the car, and I was like, and I was like. Oh my gosh, like I'm such a failure, right? Like I I'm terrible. Like the thing that I thought I was put on this earth to do, I can't even do it, right? Like I can't even I'm not even good at it, right? And you're telling me like I'm not as good as like, some of these other professors who I've seen who have had, right? Like how can this be, right? So they're like, yeah, like the four C's that wasn't even useful for us. I was like, I, I think it was Luis who wrote that. Um but no, no, <laughs> um, definitely not. It was before your time for sure. But there was it was comments like that and I was like, "Oh my goodness, I'm such a failure." Right? Like it'd be different if it was like, "Oh, like we didn't like the look of the slides, right? But it was like getting to the very core of my teaching ability, the very core of who I was. They're like, man, like, why do they hire these people for? They're terrible at their job. I'm like, oh, right. And so the fangs really came out and it, it crushed me, right? It crushed my ego. And I remember just like ranting to my friend because I was so mad um, because obviously the students don't see all the work that you put in. They don't, yeah. they don't get a good glimpse of that, right? And that night I really couldn't sleep because I was like just mulling in my mind. I was like, dude, I want to know who that student is so I can just give him a piece of my mind. Right? I can just <laughs> tell him, right? And give him, a, and give him an F in this class, right? But um. There's a reason why it's anonymous for a reason, obviously, <laughs> right? Um, but, um, but you know, I think when you think about it from that perspective, right? And so obviously, I got over it, and I and I and, I, and I, it made me and it made me think, and made me kind of reevaluate myself. When you think about failure from that perspective, right? When this kind of critical failure in my own job, in terms of my own ability to actually teach, which is what I intended to do, right? Mm -hmm. It made me rethink, like, am I even good at this? Should I even do this, right? All these kinds of things. But I think two important lessons that it taught me, and there's many more that it taught me, and I'm, so I'm thankful for it as hard as it was, is the first is never take success for granted. Yep. Never assume success, right? And so oftentimes we think, I have a degree, right? I learned all these different things. I learned all these programs. I, I'm someone who is outgoing. I'm someone who is, who, who's a connect, who can connect with people. I'm gonna be successful, right? And people tell us that, they puff us up sometimes, right? Our faculty tell us that, our friends tell us that, our parents, right, things like that. And they kind of puff us up and we think, oh, I'm gonna be fine, I'm gonna be successful, right? And, and, and we take it for granted that, that success actually is a result of a lot of hard work. It's a result of a lot of effort, a lot of effort that goes on behind the scenes. And when you look at these success stories, right, I think that's one of the, the dangers of looking at success stories. They say, yeah, I, I got a Maserati. Yeah, I got a new house, right? But they don't show you all the work that went on behind the scenes to get to that point. They don't show you all the effort, all the long hours, sleepless nights, 80 hour weeks that that person put in to get to where they're going, right? And so success stories would be more accurate if they showed you kind of that journey of, for the past five years, I worked 100 hour weeks, right? For the past five years, I literally, you know, ate ramen every day or something like something along the lines to get to where I need to be, right? That's true success, that hard work you put in. So success is never is never assumed, it's always earned, right? Yep. And I think that's the first thing. And I think the second, so it taught me that I need to work for this. So when I went back the second time to teach this class, I thought, what do I need to do to improve? What do I need to do to, to, to shore up some of these weaknesses, right? What do I need to do to work, to put in the work 
to give these, these students a good experience, right? So you realize the hard work that goes in. And then I think the second thing on that, sometimes we can think that, you know, if I don't have the right skills, if I don't have the right talents, right, I can't do this, right? And so I thought, man, because these kids are saying I'm not a good teacher, maybe I shouldn't do this. Mm -hmm. Maybe I don't have the ability, maybe I don't have the talent. But I think that there's a concept in developmental psychology that was actually, I learned back in undergrad that was actually really kind of interesting and really kind of, I think about it often, which is in terms of how do we measure intelligence, right? How do we think about intelligence? There are some people who think that, who have a, kind of an entity theory of intelligence in the in sense that they say that intelligence is finite. You're either smart or you're not, right? And so either you have a high IQ or you don't have a high IQ. So, and then there are people who are incremental theorists who say, you can build your intelligence, right? You're, if your IQ is 100, you can get to 180, right? If your IQ is 150, you can you can go higher, right? Things like that. And so that incremental, you can incrementally build your intelligence with hard work, with effort, et cetera, right? And so obviously that predicts a lot of things. If you believe you have an entity, if you believe that intelligence is finite, you say, I failed at this, I shouldn't try anymore, right? Mm -hmm. I, because I, I didn't do well, I shouldn't be a, a, a CS major. I shouldn't be a business major, right? Versus if you have an incremental theory, you say to yourself, I failed the midterm, but maybe if I work harder the next time around, I'll get a, a B or an A or whatever, right? And so it leads to very different outcomes based on how you see your own intelligence. And so I think it's the same for, for, for when it comes to kind of effort and work, right? A lot of people fall into the trap of saying, because I don't have these talents, because I'm not outgoing, because I'm not sociable, because I'm not a good public speaker, because I'm not this, that, or the other, I can't succeed in what I want to do in life. Mm -hmm. And they forget that uh, success, a lot of it was determined by, like I mentioned, is hard work, right? Is actually putting in the time to develop those skills. And a lot of what I tell my students, for those listening, right? They see they see people like us and they think, wow, you're, you're, you're great at networking. You're great at communicating. We didn't always start out like that. Yep. It's a skill that we developed and that we yep. built over time by talking to people, uh, you know, listening to people, making mistakes, saying the wrong things at times, right? Saying things that we wish we could take back. But through those trials and errors, right? Through that kind of work that we put in, we learn how to network, we learn how to interact, we learn how to to be good professionals, right? It's it's, it's a skill you develop. It's not, a, it's not it, part of it is talent, right? Some people are naturally better at it than others, but a lot of it is, is building up this kind of skill, right? Over time, over practice, over repetitions, just like an athlete builds up skills or builds up kind of uh, their ability to go onto the football field and, and to produce right through repetition through lifting weights through all these kind of practices right things like that and so i think i learned that that you know i used to th i thought that, oh my oh my goodness because these these students they hate my teaching ability maybe i'm not meant to be a teacher it may what it made me realize is that i just need to put more work in i need to find ways to innovate i need to find ways to try harder and to be better and if i can do that i can make up for whatever deficiencies that i have right and so having that incremental theory of ability is very helpful and so yeah so a couple lessons i learned a lot of uh, and i think last thing bonus when success does happen enjoy it and, yes. and be appreciative of it yeah. realize that it's not because you because it's not guaranteed when you do come up with that lucky break that great product right that great that great innovation be thankful and and, and and be appreciative of it realizing that it's not it was never guaranteed it was never assumed it was a result of hard work some a bit of opportunity good opportunities and good fortune and things like that mm -hmm. right but it doesn't happen for everyone so when you, it happens for you be thankful and appreciative and realize it for what it is so that's what i would say yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's an amazing story, especially for for a lot of students to hear like a professor, right? Sure. Ha having having that that um, that story behind it, because I, I think students do take professors for granted. They don't understand the hard work and how professors are evolving. They're trying to make their courses better. Sure. They're trying to you know improve on their craft. Everybody is. Yeah. And I hope everybody is. Cause sure. That's how you progress in life is by consistently improving. Um, but yeah, that that's really why we always want to end with that segment is just really. 
um, talking about the reality of how you somebody gets from point A to point B. It's mm -hmm. not it's not as in just happened overnight. Um, there's a lot of failures. There's a lot of hard work that goes behind it, and that eventually leads to success or whatever profession is. Um, and we really want to change that conversation sure. so it goes away from just talking about success, but talking about the underlying cause um, mm -hmm. behind it. Um, but yeah, that that concludes the the main part of the show for today. Um, but we are gonna have our next segment come right after. We're gonna kind of do the behind the scenes to set it up. Um, so if you're watching right now, definitely stay tuned. Uh, it'll take about five to 10 minutes to set it up. Um, but uh, definitely follow us on all our social media platforms, Free Logic. Um, and the other part is that next week for the next show, it'll just be us three uh, discussing some stuff for Free Logic. Uh, but the week after that, we will have another UCF professor. We are having Professor Rich. So we'll continue some of the conversations we talked about today. Yeah. Hey, Rich, I'll be in that chat. I'll be, and I'll be watching, Rich. I'll be watching, all right? Uh, <laughs> switch the script a little yeah. bit. Uh, but uh, before we end, um, I will always want to give the professor a, a plug. So what, what classes are you teaching so that sure. you can make sure that students can uh, pick your classes yeah. up? Uh, sure. Um, only pick my classes if you think it's worthwhile for you. That's what I will say. Um, yeah. And so I teach uh, advertising. This year I'm teaching advertising, which is business 117. Um, I'm also teaching consumer behavior in the spring 112. And so, um, yeah, I just want to give a shout out to all my students once again who are watching this. Thank you for lasting this long. And, and <laughs> if you're still watching this, but uh, really, once again, it's the students that that, 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 that that help us to get where we're at. So it's always students such as as everyone watching this who really helps all of us faculty to do what we do on a daily basis. So it's really the students that I'm most grateful for and that really make my job great. So thank you for that. But uh, for those of you who I might have in class in the future, uh, definitely feel free to reach out for sure. So thank you. Absolutely. Cool. So let's uh, set up for yeah. over and under. Let's do it. All right, cool. Thank you for tuning into The Brew. I hope you enjoyed this episode and tell us what you thought about our conversation in the comments below. If you guys like our content, make sure to follow us on our various social media platforms and we will see you all next time.